Welcome back to In Light of the Gospel. This is episode 27, and I'm speaking with Joshua Steele. I first became aware of Joshua Steele probably 15, 20 years ago, closer to 20 years ago, when I was reading the No Greater Joy magazine from Michael and Debbie Pearl, and they were introducing a young man who was moving from Texas to Ukraine to become a missionary. And uh, he was a young single guy who was going to spend his time preaching and reaching the people with the gospel and heading into the mountains and uh, sharing literature and trying to win the people of Ukraine to Christ. And some years later, we saw that he was now getting married to Kelsey. And uh, then a few years later, he was having children. And we've kind of watched him grow up and become a young married man. I come to realize now he's actually a little bit older than I am. So maybe I think I'm very young. But anyway, it's, uh, it's been a real joy and a pleasure for me to watch him from afar. I've seen him take, uh, through the magazines, I've seen him take young missionaries or young wannabe missionaries into the Carpathian Mountains, handing out literature and gospel tracts and things like that. And uh, it's, it's always been on the back of my mind to see what he's up to. And now I got the privilege and the honor of being able to speak with him personally. You'll hear Joshua's own personal story, how he came to faith as a second or third generation Christian in a home where the gospel was preached regularly, and uh, how he came to grips with the reality of it and, and began to minister and serve in his hometown in Texas. You'll hear about his uh, on-the-ground ministry in Ukraine and the war that's happening there in Ukraine now and how they had to leave to head to Slovakia. Uh, I really... I'm very blessed by the story and very blessed by his passion and drive to minister and serve. And I hope you will be the same. And uh, I'll, I'll be sharing some of the links for his uh, ministries in Ukraine. Hopefully you can log on to those and listen to his own podcast and perhaps uh, help them out in their journey as they minister to the people of Ukraine. But thanks again for tuning in. I do appreciate you sharing these videos, liking them, subscribing to them. It uh, helps the algorithm on YouTube and on the uh, podcast platforms to to create more awareness of what I'm sharing here. So thanks again for tuning in and God bless you. Well, here we are, Joshua yes. Steele from Ukraine. I, uh, I've had a couple podcasts where I'm talking to missionaries and missionary type people who are very interested in that kind of thing. And it really intrigues me to consider what could possibly have transpired in your life to make you want to do something so drastic. I remember hearing this story from Michael Pearl that you were just a young man. Was it maybe 18 or 19 when you first moved to Ukraine? Uh, the first time I did a short term trip, I was 18. Yes. Okay. But I didn't move there like permanently until I was 21. Okay. So still, I think of 21 year olds, they got ambitions, they've got dreams, they have plans, they have careers and families that they want to start. And yet you, uh, in your extreme way, made a decision to pack everything up and head off to Ukraine to learn a language and immerse yourself in a culture. So that's, uh, it's quite a, quite a drastic thing to do and it's not normal. So I'm right. curious to hear your, your childhood, your upbringing. Was this something that you were always like? Were you a bit of a, an extreme personality? Uh, or was it, is it something that you were clearly called to by God? So. Yeah. Um, so obviously I think, I think it was God's calling. Um, and like so many other people, uh, I can testify that those early steps, um, you know, looking back now, I can see his hand. I can see how he led me, um, how he was preparing me. But of course I didn't see that at the time. I didn't understand. Um, when I was a kid, people used to tell me that I would make a good lawyer when I grew up. Cause I was always, I was always like, 
for persuading my parents for things. I didn't just come and ask for something where I could get a flat no. I would I would lay out a case when mom oh, okay. in my room. I did this, whatever. And people would tease me. Oh, you'd make either a good a good preacher or a good lawyer or something like that. Um, but um, to go back to maybe let me just start with my testimony of how um, how the Lord brought me to Himself. Um, lately, I've you know there's been a lot of talk amongst different groups about uh, the concept of second and third generation Christians. Um, I'm focusing on the negative aspects of that and how sadly it seems like many many kids who grow up in Christian homes don't choose to follow the Lord in the way that their parents did. Um, and I'm definitely a second generation Christian and depending on how you count it, possibly a third generation Christian in that um, while my parents were both strong believers, my, my grandparents on my dad's side uh, were also very strong believers uh, when he was young. And so I was raised um, with the Bible. I was raised being taught about the Lord from a very young age. My parents were part of a, uh, of a conservative church. And so um, when I look back and, and recall how God brought me to himself, it's interesting that I don't remember a time in the very early years where I was afraid of hell or I came under, you know, somehow the, the moral accountability issue dawned on me one day and I came under great guilt and conviction for my sin. It wasn't like that at the beginning. Um, in fact, what happened for me was almost, it almost kind of was a silly thing uh, a childish thing, but it was something that I think God used. Um, so I had a friend when I was about five years old. Um, there were several families in our church that we were very close to. And there was a friend of mine named John, and he was younger than me by about two or three months, which of course, when you're that age, when you're five, two or three months is a big deal. I was the yeah. older one. And that was, that was, uh, that was something that we made sure everybody understood. Um, and as a kid, I was always being told when I would ask to do something or go someplace that I couldn't, I was almost always told it was because I wasn't old enough. And around this time, I at least, I don't know about my friends, but I at least was beginning to get some abstract level that there was a difference between people who just went to church or were counted as part of a Christian religion, like being a member of a club, and people who were actually Christians. Based on, I think, things my parents were saying or things that I was hearing maybe in Sunday school, I was starting to get this, this sense that that a person, that it wasn't enough that you just attended a church or that you were part of a family who was known as a Christian family, that each individual needed to become a Christian. And of course, as a, as a kid, as a five-year-old, I had no idea what that meant. It was just, it was just something that was dawning on me. And I remember that looking back. And what happened was that led to an interesting conversation with my friend one day, he was over at our house. And again, we're five, you know, I was maybe five and a half. Um, and he says to me, he says, Hey, Josh, guess what? Um, the other day or last week, sometime recently, I became a Christian. And, and this, again, I don't remember everything, but I know that when he said that, that had meaning for me. I, I knew that there were some people who were Christians and there were some who weren't. I definitely had the sense that I was not yet. And I think at the time I assumed that this was some, some special thing that I would achieve later or some level that I wasn't, I wasn't ready for because I was too young. I mean, everything else I was too young to do, right? So that's, that, that was what it was for here. Mm -hmm. And so when John said to me, I became a Christian, I was incredulous. I said, no, you didn't. That's impossible because I'm having a Christian yet. I'm older <laughs> I'm than you older are. Than you. <laughs> no way that you could be a Christian before me. If it was possible, I would have already done it. I'm like a whole three months older than you. Yeah. But he insisted, no, no, I'm, I'm a Christian. And that, so we, we bantered back and forth about this. And, um, and of course he, he, I think I mentioned this, but he and his family went to the same church. Uh, the pastor of this church was a great guy. He's a very conservative uh, pastor named Miles Seaborn. Um, but anyway, John and I, in our childish way, argued back and forth about this. And finally, I pulled out the trump card. I said, all right, I'm going to go ask my mom, and, and we're going to find out what the truth is here. 
and I'm going to prove you wrong that you didn't, you just think you became a Christian, but you didn't really, uh, because we're, we're all too young for this job and you don't understand. And so anyway, later, I think he went home and I went inside and it was the early afternoon. And it's amazing. I think it's interesting to me, the, the things that stick in your mind when you go back to these memories that were significant or that were formative. Um, and I remember very vividly talking to my mom, my dad was at work, um, talking to my mom and explaining what had happened with John and saying, mom, is this true that John became a Christian? Surely that's, I almost said that like, mom, surely he, he's crazy. That's not, that can't be true. Right. And she said, well, I don't know if John became a Christian or not, um, but it's not impossible. He could have. Right. And I said, well, okay, whoa, stop the presses. If he can become a Christian, then I want to become a Christian. Uh, I don't want to miss out on this. And mom, as, as many parents, you know, as you might expect for a child at that age, my mom had concerns about, you know, whether or not I was really ready for this, whether I knew what I was talking about. Um, and again, at that point, I was asking after this thing, not because I was under some deep conviction from the Lord, but because my friend had something that I didn't have and I didn't want to get left behind. Right. Um, but I and my, you know, people that have known me for years or people that certainly people that I grew up with will tell you that I was, even as a child, I was a very persuasive person. If I wanted something, I would, I would hang on to it. I would pursue it. I would bring out arguments. I would build a case until, until I got what I wanted. <laughs> and so I, um, so I really, I really like worked on my mom and said, look, I want I want you to tell me how I can become a Christian. And she finally said, you know what, uh, let's talk to your father. When your father gets home from work, we'll ask him. And at that time, we, we had this tradition of taking naps. Uh, she, would, she would put us to bed for a nap on the floor. She had made these mats. And I had this big red mat, about the size of a beach towel, I guess. And big red mat. And it had a big image of Snoopy, like Charlie Brown and Snoopy. Okay. Snoopy, like monogrammed on the front of it. And, and I just say that because those were, those were like details that yeah, I remember it's... from this day that stuck in my mind. And I remember going to bed in my room on my nap, laid down on the floor, hoping that, um, that when my dad got home, he would agree to tell me how to become a Christian. So he came home. Uh, I think my mom talked with him, explained what had happened. They, you know, they had a little chat about what, what to do here. And they, and he decided, okay, if I really wanted to know that bad, he would explain it to me. So my parents, especially my mom, had been uh, heavily influenced by the Campus Crusade for Christ ministry, uh, Bill Bright. That was, it was, it was a college um, outreach from Campus Crusade for Christ that, that led to my mom coming to Christ um, when, she was, uh, when she was a university student. And they have this gospel track, which I never use. I have some issues with it, but um, it was what they had. It was called the Four Spiritual Laws. And a lot of, it's a very famous, well-known track. I've heard of it. it. Yeah. But it talks about, I don't even, I couldn't even tell you off the top of my head what the four spiritual laws are, but they're things like everyone is a sinner, our sin separates us from God, things like that, kind of a Romans Road-esque yeah. uh, presentation leading you up to. And I remember sitting in the living room with my dad. I remember the carpet was blue. The couches were this horrendous, like brownish floral pattern from the darkest days of the 70s. And we sat together. I think my mom was there too. We sat together and my dad took me through that gospel track. Wow. And he presented to me the gospel. And it wasn't a desire for God per se in, in, the, in the classical sense that we, that we understand it or a fear of hell or even a guilt for sin or anything that drove me to that. But looking back, I think, it was, I think it was God's providence. And I think because I was raised in a Christian family and because I was exposed to the jargon and the knowledge and everything from an early age uh, and the scriptures, that God maybe used those things uh, to bring me to that moment where I, without even really knowing what I was pursuing, I asked for the thing 
that resulted in me hearing the gospel from my father. Hmm. Um, and he, he shared the gospel with me. And at the end he said, um, I don't remember exactly the, the words, but he essentially said, you can know that you're going to be in heaven with the Lord. When you die, all you need to do is ask Jesus to come into your heart to save you. Um, and if you want to do that, we can do it right here. And so we got down on the floor and we did something else that I'm, I'm not a huge fan of, but he led me in a sinner's prayer. Um, and of course, the, the whole the whole concept of the sinner's prayer and the the correctness or not of that inscription and so forth is a conversation for another day. I've seen pitfalls with it. But the, the fact remains that I remember getting down on my knees with my father and asking Jesus to save me, to come into my heart. Um, and that was a, that was a huge moment for me. And I was very conscious of the fact based on his explanation and what I'd learned. Um, I was very conscious of the fact that before that day, I was not a Christian. I was not a believer. And after that day, I was, hmm. that was the first time in my life as I look back when, because of, of the teaching and the explanation of my parents, I was, I was led to a point of being able to make a, a conscious, uh, individual decision um, to follow after Christ. Um, so that happened. And in, in a few months after that, I start, I went to, they, they told the pastor that, you know, Joshua's made a profession of faith. This is a pretty conservative Southern Baptist church. And so I was enrolled then in a, in a little baptismal preparation class and given some basic teaching. And then a few months later, I was probably, uh, six, somewhere in there. Um, I was baptized uh, in front of the church you know, pretty traditional uh, wow. uh, baptism ceremony. So I would have been about six at the time I was baptized. And the, t the day that I uh, prayed there with my dad and, and believed on the Lord, I, it was December the 26th, I believe, of 1984. And I would have been about five and a half. My birthday's in May. So that was the beginning of my uh, testimony. And I, in years after that, I have looked back at that and I have tried to pick it apart. I've wondered, you know, now how much can a kid really know? I didn't understand imputed righteousness. I don't even have a remembrance of really feeling some huge sense of guilt. But I can say that in the, in the weeks, in the, even in the days following after that, um, I was ecstatic about what I had learned. Uh, I, had a, I have a, a sister right after me who's about two years younger than me. And I can remember taking her out in the backyard um, and we were playing and we, we had a very large backyard for our area. And my dad had built this massive playhouse out of, out of uh, shipping pallets that were at his company that he worked with. And I remember taking her behind the playhouse and talking with her and saying, Jennifer, look, I, I have got to tell you about this thing that I learned when, when you die, you either go to heaven or you go to hell. And, but you know what? It's really easy to know that you're going to go to heaven. Okay. I found out it's absolutely free. You don't have to do anything, which again, for a child, this was huge because we were, we're a child is, is very used to that tit for tat world, that give and take. You have to do something, you have to earn something, whatever. And the fact that I had been able to get something so valuable, so amazing for free was in my childlike faith, just phenomenal. And the very first thing I wanted to do was tell everybody I knew. And the first That's person awesome. I came across was my sister. And I hounded her, Jennifer, look, all you have to do, there's this little track, you, you're a sinner, you know, the things you do bad, you know, when you hit me the other day, that was sin that separates from you from God. And I, I don't remember my exact words, but I led her through this thing. And I really pressured her, Jennifer, look, I, dad prayed with me. I know how to do it. I can pray with you right here. You can ask Jesus into your heart and we can just be done with this. And you can know that you're going to go to heaven. And she wasn't sure. She was like, you know what, let me, let me just talk to dad. So anyway, my, 
I was not able to lead her to Christ there directly, but my pressuring her led her to go and also ask my parents. Um, and sure enough, it wasn't long before there was another conversation on the couch and Jennifer got that talk and she uh, believed in the Lord. And when she, in later years, when she has shared her testimony and people have asked her how she came to Christ, um, uh, she has, has referred back to that. The, the initial promptings or the, the initial encounters that she had with me there. Um, so anyway, the, the, one of the interesting things to fast forward a little bit here is that as I got older and I would hear testimonies of other people, how they got saved, one thing that I began to notice that was different about my experience was this, this contrast that I saw in other people. You know, this guy would come up and say, you know, I was a drug dealer and I lived on the streets and I was doing all this stuff. And then I met this, you know, somebody came and gave me a track and I read it and I got saved and my life completely turned around and I'm a totally different person today than I was before. And I kept hearing this and I kept comparing it with what I had experienced and I didn't see that contrast. Mm -hmm. and, and it left me, it began to trouble me. And I, I thought, well, my, I understand that Jesus died for my sins. I've never tried to assert that I wasn't a sinner or that I didn't need salvation or that I was good enough because I went to church. I knew all those things were wrong. But at the same time, when I looked at my life, I couldn't really point to that big of a change if we're talking about behavior because I was raised in a Christian home. I didn't have time to do drugs or get anything too terrible. Yeah. I was a homeschool kid. Um, and I believed on the Lord. And um, you know, my life didn't actually... In, in terms of my behavior, I didn't see that big of a change. And I know that there are a lot of, of folks who are, who have talked about this being second generation Christians and saying, you know, it, it was just kind of this, this decision. So as time went by, um, God continued to work in my life. Um, of course, I, as I got older, I, I faced new challenges. I struggled with sin and temptation around about the time that I was 12 years old. Um, two major things happened in my life that I think God used to kind of lead me further. One was that my mom took me to this seminar called the Institute in Basic Life Principles. It was a seminar put on oh, by yes. Bill Gothard, and a lot of people will know his name. And I realized that talking about IBLP is a very loaded topic. There's a lot of, there's a lot of sharp opinions all over the place about Bill Gothard. Um, and yes, I, I realized that the man wasn't perfect. Um, and there were, there were problems, there were issues, but that aside, when I look back at my experience as an individual, I firmly believe that God used what I learned at Bill Gothard's seminar as a 12 year old to draw me closer to himself. I believe I was saved at that point. Um, but I went to his seminar for the first time as a 12 year old. And I started hearing about things like clearing my conscience, admitting to someone when I was wrong and asking for forgiveness. Um, about uh, being under authority to my parents, being in submission to them. Um, lots of different things that were presented there. But Good interestingly, yes, very, very biblical things. Um, and like, you know, like any, any um, church or ministry, yes, there were things I think that were taught there that were not biblical. But looking back, the things that, that I got out of it um, were, were sound. They, they went a long way to putting me on the road to a, a better understanding of the Lord of the scriptures and of sound. Okay. But interestingly, at that same time, when I was 12, that was when I first met Mike Pearl. I see. We had, we had a family. That's quite a contrast. That, yes. And, and a lot of people, when they hear my testimony are very surprised that I point to those two men, Bill Gothard and Mike Pearl in the same breath as major mentors. <laughs> they seem to be like, how, how do you get, how do you get those two guys uh, wrapped up in one person? But, you know, 
the Bible characterizes believers. Uh, there are several different kind of hallmarks or major signs that the Bible, that the scriptures name that, you know, this is how you know a believer. But one of those is that in Romans 8 there, that they that are led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God. And God, God doesn't have some kind of a cookie cutter experience uh, that he reproduces for everybody. God is a very custom, individual, tailor-made um, experience, has such an experience for everyone. And I think, I think his spirit leads every individual down the exact steps, down the exact path they need to go leading up to salvation and then even beyond salvation. Mm -hmm. um, so I was very influenced by Bill Gothard's seminar and, and his teachings. And I might add that our family in general had been very influenced by Bill Gothard's teachings. My parents went to their first basic seminar, as it was called, back in the early 70s, just either just before or just after they got married, but definitely before I came on the scene. Um, and what they learned from the basic seminar had a great impact on how they raised their children and how right. they built their family. And, you know, the things like our morning Bible time that we did together and, and all kinds of different levels that were influenced by that. So around that same time I met Mike Pearl, there was a, there was a fellow named Bill Bell, um, who had been, uh, one of the young men that ministered with Mike, um, in, in during, back during the Vietnam war years, they used to go down and minister to servicemen and they had been neighbors, actually Bill Bell and Mike Pearl had been neighbors in Memphis. And then Bill had transferred down to Fort Worth because he worked for the FAA. Long story short, our family and the Bell family and a few others ended up starting this home church. Hmm. Um, it was another story, but we had left the Southern Baptist church that I was at when I got, when I got uh, saved and baptized. And my family, the Bells and these others had gotten together and formed a home church. And there were about six families. Um, and we'd been doing this not very long, maybe a year and a half, maybe two at tops. And none of the men who were, who were leading this church um, were professional preachers. None of them have a seminary degree or anything like that. They were just, they were normal guys working jobs and trying to, you know, get this church on its feet. So one day Bill comes along and says, hey, I know this guy named Mike Pearl. And we were neighbors up in Memphis. And Mike is a really strong Bible teacher, especially in Revelation and Romans. And I, I remember him suggesting this to the, to the congregation that, hey, we ought to have Mike come down here and teach a Bible study for us. It'd be a really good thing for our church. It'd be an opportunity for us to grow. And we ought to just do that. And the other men, they said, okay, if you like this guy and you trust him, then fine, let's, let's have him come. So he did. And I remember the pearls showed up in this junky van. Uh, it was really <laughs> junky. It was full of trash. <laughs> and uh, and I remember just my my initial impression of them was like, wow, where did these people come from? They're just kind of like, they were they were fun. They were really confident, but they were kind of wild and they were not very refined. Than what we were, yeah, they were just I don't know unrefined. Yeah, that might be a good way of putting it. So anyway, they came, and I remember sitting in uh, the first night on Mike teaching through Romans. And I was just enthralled. Um, I think, you know, especially with some of the things that had happened in my life up to that point, my, my sensors, my ears were open. I wanted to know more of the Lord. And I heard Mike teach uh, verse by verse from Romans. And it was like, it was different than any other Bible teaching I'd ever heard. And it just captivated me. Well, at the same time, I think Mike and Debbie both were surprised that I was so interested being as young as I was and being a young man, I think they hadn't, they hadn't expected that, or maybe they didn't see it that often, but they came up to me like the first or second night. And they commented on the fact that something to the effect that, wow, this is really great that you're so interested. Um, so he taught through Romans, I believe he taught some through revelation and that kind of started my relationship with Mike. And at that time, I think he 
took an interest in me. Um, and even though we didn't live in the same state, I would do whatever I could to get a hold of his tapes. At the time, he was recording Bible studies and recording them on cassette tapes. And okay. I would get his cassette tapes. And while I was working or doing my stuff, I would listen to his Romans teaching and other, other ones that he had recorded on cassette. Um, and then um, a couple of years later, when I was 14, Mike came back to our church for another seminar. I don't even remember what it was. Um, and I remember they showed us this video. You may have heard of it from New Tribes Missions. It's called Eat Tao. Yeah. So we saw this video. Of course, that's, a, that's a very impactful, very moving video. And while I was impressed and I saw that, and I was also, I think by this point, I was, I was fairly certain that I wanted to give my life fully to service for the kingdom of God. I didn't know what At that 14. meant. Yeah. Um, wow. And that, I think that really started back when I was 12, when I went to the basic seminar, that was one of the concepts that I began to, that I began to really understand at the basic seminar was that there were Christians who were believers, but they hadn't really fully committed their lives to Christ. They were just, they were their like their attitude towards their Christianity or the Lord was just sort of that it was like a, a Sunday accessory, but they still kind of wanted to, to be in control. Uh, but then there were some people that were willing to fully dedicate their life to the Lord, no matter what that meant, even if it meant, you know, going to Africa as a missionary or whatever. Okay. And so anyway, with that kind of a background, I saw this video that Mike uh, and them showed. And at the time I was impressed. I was impressed that those missionaries had gone over there, that they had figured out this chronological approach and all the things that they had done. But at the same time, I still was very skeptical of the idea. I felt like that my place was going to be something more I didn't know in the United States, maybe with some overseas travel. But this, this idea of being a foreign missionary, I, I didn't like it. Hmm. Um, in fact, one of the reasons I didn't like it was because I didn't feel like I had the prerogative to announce that I was going to commit my ministry to a single country. I didn't see that anywhere in scripture. And and every missionary that I'd ever met always said they were a missionary to blank. And that always used to confuse me because I think, well, did God come down and say, okay, you can just focus on, you know, Tanzania and you can right. forget about the rest of the world. And so, you know, that may have been a, a, a simple thing, but it was, it was a roadblock for me. And I, I definitely had uh, the idea that I wanted to minister in such a way that didn't discount any area of the globe. On the one hand, I didn't think that I personally could go to everybody on the whole planet and talk to them. Right. But I also didn't want to limit myself. And I didn't feel like I could say, well, I want to go be a missionary to Papua New Guinea or be a missionary to this place or that place. Um, but I remember after we watched that video, Debbie came up to me and she kind of patted me on the shoulder and said, well, Joshua, we're praying for you. And we know that there's going to be a tribe out there for you somewhere and that you're going to you know, you're gonna go. <laughs> and, and I just kind of said, okay, yes, Mrs. Pearl. Sure. Thank you very much. Keep praying, you know, and God can interpret those prayers. Um, but during that trip, so that video was, was very influential on me, but perhaps even more influential. In fact, I would say definitely more influential was the outreach that we did. Because despite my Christian upbringing, despite my involvement in church, my very conservative parents and all of those things, I was never a part of a group of people that was evangelistic, at least not in my, not in a sense that I experienced. I was never taken out to do witnessing, um, to pass out tracts, to do any of those things. Um, I, somehow, I, I knew that we should tell others about Jesus, but, it, but my understanding of how that would work was very primitive. So when Mike came this one time when I was 14, same trip where he showed the video, a group of them were going to get together and they were going to go, they had brought some chick tracks and I was just, I was shown these chick tracks and these were, these were being all hyped up as this is the, this is the best thing in the world. These, this, this was your life uh, track with the little comics. These are great. And Mike said, Hey, let's get a group of 
guys, let's go down into Fort Worth to the mall and let's let's witness to people and let's pass out tracks. Wow. And again, I was still young enough that my my assumption was that I would not be invited to go because I would be too young. And I think it was Mr. Bell, Bill, who who spoke up and said, Well, hey, we should bring Joshua along. And I was like, I was like all of a sudden just excited and but but not trying to get my hopes up because I was I was just waiting. I knew any moment somebody was gonna say, No, nah, he's too young, he's only 14, can't take him. Um, but they did. And Mike said, sure. Yeah, we can bring him along. Come on. You want to go, Joshua? We're going to go pass out some tracks. It's not hard. And I thought, wow, I can, I, you're, you're going to let me go. Okay. Nice. So I went and I remember we, there was, there were maybe six or seven of us. We went to a mall. I'd never done this before. Of course, I was really kind of uh, intimidated and scared to know how to go and talk to people about Jesus. But I remember Gabe Pearl, Mike's oldest son, uh, was with us and he and I somehow got, got teamed up together. Um, we went to the mall first. I remember seeing Mike talk to some pretty weird characters. Then they kicked us out of the mall and we went to <laughs> the security guard asked us to leave. So then we went over to a big park and I remember I had a stack of, of these, this was your life gospel tracks. And I was with Gabe Pearl and we walked around this Trinity park and we talked to some people, handed out tracks. Um, we ended up talking to this one guy who was definitely you know, pretty high on drugs, hmm. um, but we tried to talk to him, but that was my initial experience with evangelism. That was the first time anybody ever took me out witnessing. And despite not knowing what I was doing, despite my apprehension, I fell in love with it. And you and, were actually engaging with these, these people with the gospel yes, already. Yeah. Yes. Uh, all I knew was just what little I had heard and yeah. been taught. And I had this track. Now I, at this time, I knew a fair amount about the Bible and about salvation. I'd been through, you know, Roma's teaching from Mike. So I wasn't a full on theologian or anything, but I had some, I definitely had some sure. uh, groundwork there. Um, but what I, what I lacked was the practical experience of going out in public, talking to a stranger and telling them about the Lord, telling them how to get saved, or even just handing them a gospel tract and trying to have a light conversation, hoping they'll read it later. I hadn't done any of that. And this experience when I was 14 was the very first time. I um, and I was hooked on it. And I found out that you can order these tracks through the mail. And so I started doing that. Um, and when I, and so one thing led to another, then when I was, it, it seemed like for some reason, these, these events came in two year increments. So when I was 12, it was my first meeting with Mike basic seminar when I was 14, first time to go ev to evangelism during, also during that trip, I met TJ Slayman. And I, you may know TJ. I've met him on one occasion. Yep. So he was young guy. Then he had, he was uh, not, hadn't been saved that long himself, but he was on that trip and he and I kind of struck up a friendship. And of course this was, this was the era before email and before the internet or it's ubiquity at least. Um, and he and I actually started corresponding uh, with regular letters. He had told me that he was going to go to this language school in Bowie, Texas to get ready to go overseas as a missionary. He was going to learn how to learn languages. So he and I started writing letters and we were, we were writing about uh, Bible questions and just about all that kind of stuff. It was definitely centered around ministry and around the Lord. And we were just writing literal, you know, pen and paper letters, mailing them back and forth to each other. And he hadn't been there long when he told me that he was going to go on this trip to Hong Kong. Uh, it was a short-term missions trip. I thought, wow. And I remember my first question was, well, can we keep writing after you go? Um, and he said, sure. He, I'll, as soon as I have it, I'll get you my address. So sure enough, he ended up going with, now this was not a group that Mike was organizing, but it was organized by another fellow that Mike had met. And Mike got TJ into touch with this guy and wanted him to go, thought it'd be a good experience. So Mike really kind of made it happen. Okay. So TJ goes over to Hong Kong <clears throat> and he and I keep corresponding. Now I'm sending my letters all the way to Hong Kong. They take much longer going back and forth. 
And it, he was part of a six month project. He was all the way in Hong Kong. They were passing out all these gospel tracks and doing all this stuff. And he was with a group of young people over there. And uh, I was about 16 at the time um, when this was going, when he went to Hong Kong and this is all going down. And one day I get this letter from him and he says, Hey, um, I, uh, we need some, some help over here. We've had some people that had to go home and we're running short of manpower. We have this, this set amount of literature that we're supposed to pass out in a certain amount of time. And we're behind schedule. We're not going to make it because we don't have enough help. Would you be interested in coming over and helping us? Huh. And once again, it was just like, you gotta be kidding me. I mean, I'm too young. I'm, the, I'm from the steel family. We don't <laughs> travel. <laughs> um, you know, that's, that can't possibly work, you know? And, but he's, he said something to the effect of, well, you know, just pray about it, just pray about it and see what God does. And so I said, okay, fine. You know, what, 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 hurt, what harm can that do? I'll pray about it. At the time I was also trying to financially support TJ. I was working a small job or something and I had gotten some money together. I knew that he had expenses as a missionary. And so I had sent this check uh, to uh, the church at King Creek. This was again, before, this is before no greater joy before any of that. So I sent this church, this check to his church. And at the time, unbeknownst to me, TJ had also been talking with Mike and Debbie saying, hey, we need some help. Maybe you guys want to send Gabe over here to help us or something like that. And they wanted to, but they wanted somebody to go with Gabe. And they were trying to think, who could we get to go with Gabe over to Hong Kong so they can go help TJ and get this, get these tracks out. And right about the time they were searching for that name, my check showed up as support for TJ. And I thought, hey, Joshua Steele, we've met him. There you go. Uh, you know, he's a, he's, a, he's a good option. Why don't, we, why don't we send him over and see if he can go? So it wasn't long before we get a phone call from Mike and he asked to speak with my dad and he said, Hey, um, you know, here, this is Mike Pearl. Here's the situation. Would Joshua be willing to go to Hong Kong? And again, for my, you know, people that know me now are used to the idea of me traveling all over the place. But those who knew my family back then, our family was the epitome of, you know, the homebody crowd. Really? We didn't go anywhere. Uh, we were, my dad was born and raised in Fort Worth, still lives in Fort Worth. I technically still live in Fort Worth. That's my home address. I mean, we didn't go much of anywhere. And so when this came in, it was just like, it was like somebody asking us, we wanted to fly to Mars or something. I mean, it was just, it was just off the chart. And I think the initial objection was, well, that's really expensive and I don't think we can afford it. And Mike said, look, if you guys will, if you can just get together the money for the plane ticket. Um, we will pay for Joshua's like room and board and expenses while he's there. Um, and the story of how I ended up going to Hong Kong as a 16 year old could be a podcast episode into itself. It's a, it's a huge, uh, long thing, but suffice to say, God pulled some supernatural strings. This was a time the government had closed down because of some financial squabblings and they weren't even issuing passports and I didn't have a passport. And there were so many reasons why I should not have been able, even we, even though we were able to get the money together for the ticket, I should not have been able to go. But God worked it out and I went to Hong Kong and as a 16 year old, uh, and interestingly enough, at the last minute, Gabe injured his leg. I forget what happened, but he got in some kind of a, an injury and he sprained his knee or something and he couldn't go. So I ended up as a 16 year old flying <laughs> to Hong Kong by myself. Um, Your parents must have been apprehensive. Uh, they were, my mom was a little crazy and she, there were other people that were telling her like, you, you're doing what you're sending your 16 year old son to Hong Kong by, by himself. himself. <laughs> you are nuts. <laughs> but again, I think this was, and, and let me say that for, for a lot of families or teenagers or whatever, that might not be a wise yeah, decision. No, so if you're exactly. a parent and you're listening to this, I'm not advocating that every 16 year old should be shipped <laughs> off to Hong Kong by himself. But what I am saying is that I think God was leading me. 
I think God had his hand on me and he was leading me step by step. And this trip was something he wanted me to be a part of. So I went and I met, TJ was the only guy on that team that I knew before I got there. Um, they left my bag when I, when I flew to Hong Kong, all my bags stayed in Dallas. I got there. I was there three days with no luggage, nothing like the clothes on my back. Um, and, but it was a, it was a very serious learning time. I, we passed out not, not just in the time that I was there, but the project as a whole, they put out over a million gospel tracks in Hong Kong. Um, Hong Kong is full of these, you know, very closely packed apartments, high rise buildings, and it was more of like a, an Olympic marathon or something than a ministry trip. We were just running all day long, putting tracks in mailboxes and things like that. But it was, it was during the Hong Kong trip that I learned how to manage and, and pull off a large-scale literature campaign. We had a, we had a MAPSCO, like, a, like a, a map book that showed all the streets and buildings. We would go to an area and we would divide up the team. It was very systematic. Everybody had backpacks. We could all carry about 3,000 tracks in a day. Um, and there were six to eight of us, depending on the day. And there was one guy named Bob. He was like our, our coordinator. And he would break everybody up into teams of two. We, he would send us out to the buildings. And um, we would go through a building, put out tracks through the whole building, and then check it off the list or circle the building or whatever. And we would just systematically move through the city uh, until we had done all the buildings. Um, and when I got done with my time in Hong Kong and I came back, of course, the, the first thing on the top of my mind was, how can I keep doing what I learned in Hong Kong in Fort Worth? How can I replicate this? And I thought, well, this is not rocket science. I can do this. So I, the first thing I did is I went down to the store and I bought a Mapsco, um, which this, again, this is before Google Maps or anything like that. You had, if you wanted a map of the city that showed like all the streets and buildings, you had to buy this big spiral. They were red spiral books called Mapscos. And it's amazing um, that we have to describe this because it's become so obsolete, right? Like there's nothing like that anymore. Exactly. I know nobody, nobody even gets those, but, um, we got these and I started, I started just hounding the kids in our church, the teenagers, the, the, the people that I'd grown up with, my friends that were my age, I would call them on the weekends and say, Hey, um, I'm going out to this neighborhood. I've got this map and I've, I've ordered a bunch of tracks. Will you come with me? And we'll pass out tracks door to door. And I, you know, I could usually get together a group of three, five, sometimes more kids these are teenagers and they would come with me and we would go out and pass out these tracks. Um, so a lot was happening in my life. I was kind of banging my head against the wall, trying new things, learning stuff, but I was trying to, to evangelize and fulfill the great commission right there in Fort Worth, the way I had learned in Hong Kong. Also on the way, were you going to ask something? Yeah. I was just going to say, were you, were you seeing any fruit? Was it uh, productive or was it just, you were so hooked on the concept of sharing that it didn't matter if you saw converts or not? It was interesting. Um, there was fruit. Um, I remember being frustrated with the, with what I felt was not enough fruit. Um, there was a time when I remember there was this fellow that I, that I met, he sold like these, um, Indian crafts on the side of the road. And I used to drive by him every day. He would just park in his pickup and he would sell these crafts. And I remember driving by him and thinking, man, I should witness to that guy, you know? And, so finally, one day I stopped and I, I looked at his stuff and, and I, I struck up a conversation with him and I was able to, you know, in the space of about five or 10 minutes, I shared the gospel with him. And he was one of these kind of real laid back, quiet guys, didn't, didn't provide a whole lot of, of verbal feedback, but he wasn't, he didn't run me off and he seemed to, he seemed to understand and whatever. So I took him through that. And then finally, at the end, I said, well, you know, you can, you can receive Christ right here. Would you like to pray with me and receive Christ? And he said, okay. And I kind of led him in a repeat after me style prayer. And he was like, okay, thanks. 
and it was all over and it was just like, that was it. Okay. I did what you wanted. And I, I think I left him a track and then I left, but I was really struck by this feeling that, you know what, you just went and steamrolled that guy and, you know, yeah, you gave him the gospel. So that was, that was good. But, you know, you pushed him through this fate, through this like prayer at the end. Um, and I, for myself, I was, I was far from convinced that this guy knew what was going on or that he really had faith. All I could say was that I got him to, I got him to pray the prayer that was like prescribed. And I could certainly check him off as a box. Like, Hey, I led this guy to Christ, but I had no confidence that he was actually a believer. And from that time on, I thought, you know what? I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to push someone to recite a prayer if, if they're not ready. I'm going to, and I, the more I started studying that issue out in scripture, the more I realized that my call was to give them the gospel, to challenge them to believe, but not to encourage them to recite some saying and give them a sense of trust in the fact that, well, I, I did the thing, I prayed the prayer, you know which that, you know, we can connect that here in a bit. That kind of goes yeah. back to the whole problem with the second generation Christians. There's a lot of people that have had their hand raised, that have been to the front, they've been to the altar, they've done the thing, they have the checkbox, and they're lost as a even goose. Even a lot of so-called mission organizations, I know of one that spends a lot of time in Papua New Guinea. They'll take their young converts or their young students and bring them to Papua New Guinea for about six weeks, and they'll go from village to village to village, preaching the gospel through an interpreter, and sure enough, you know, the village kids all love to see this tall white kid from Canada there. And so they are excited to hear what they have to say. And then when they ask them who wants to become a Christian, and you know, free T-shirts involved and all that, all the hands go up. And right. sure enough, you get, uh, you know, we got 100 people that we got saved last week. And well, that's all pretty questionable to me. So from that time on, and it wasn't just that one experience. That was something that I was I was studying out. I was talking to Mike about it, other people, and I I had the conviction that leading someone in a prayer like that, a sinner's prayer, was not something I wanted to do. It was not something I felt was biblical. My my calling was to present the gospel and challenge them to believe it. Mm -hmm. And I remember at the time reading Mike's track and liking how he put it at the end. He didn't have a sinner's prayer at the end of his track, like many did, including the chick track. Um, his just said. You know, this is the gospel and it's something to the effect of if you believe this, then the Bible says that your sins are forgiven and you're a child of God. Now, now go read your Bible and God will change your life. And I thought, what's wrong with leading someone with that? What's wrong with telling them, hey, do you believe the gospel? Okay, then, the, then on the authority of the word of God, if you believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you're trusting in him for your salvation, not in your own works, uh, then the Bible declares that you are born again, that you're a child of God. Right. Go and sin no more, you know. Um, so anyway, you were, we got off on that as you asked about the issue of fruit. So that was, that was maybe a more negative experience where I felt like using my, my powers of persuasion, my talking skills, whatever, I was able to draw this out of this guy, but I, I, I had the distinct impression that it was plastic, that it was something that I had just brought about and it wasn't necessarily the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, right. I hope the Holy Spirit was at work there in spite of me. I hope that guy did whether that at that point or later become a, a believer. And I'm, and I know that the, that the Lord can work through other people and mission organizations if they haven't got this issue just right or whatever. But for me, it was something that I said, you know, I'm not gonna do that anymore. So, and I realized that if I wanted to, man, I could get a checklist and I could bang them out. I could go out there. I could get 50 people a day to pray this prayer with me. That wasn't hard. I'm good at persuading people. I'm good at talking to them, making, making them feel comfortable, you know, getting my point across, persuading them of my point of view, and then getting them to sign something or, or, or 
or whatever. And I realized yeah. that that was that that part. My responsibility was to present the gospel to them, make sure they understood it. But the actual the actual step of believing on the gospel that was up to the Lord, and I needed to, I needed to keep my grubby mitts off of that point. Um, so as 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 my little um, evangelism ministry was developing. Um, we decided, I got, I got together with my friends there and we decided, or maybe I decided and persuaded them all to do it. We decided we were going to write our own gospel track. And I said, guys, look, I think we can do this. We need to write our own track and it's not going to have a sinner's prayer. And we're going to do this. So I got some greeting card software back in the day. There was this software called, it was from a company called Broderbund and you could use it to make little birthday cards and stuff. And it had this, this horrible clip art that you could drag around and it was extremely primitive, but it was my first introduction to uh, like page layout software. So my friends and I got together and I wrote this track and we used, we used clip art and I kind of patched it all together and we made like a, a letter sized threefold brochure track. It was called the way. And I mean, we did stuff like I needed, I needed an image of somebody in hell, but I, I couldn't draw. And I didn't, and there's, there's no hell clip art in the greeting card software. <laughs> so, so I found like this campfire and I found this guy who was like crossing the finish line and he had his hands up in the air and I like patched him over each other. So it looked like this guy was like suffering in hell, you know? And, um, and we put this, we put this, um, this track together. Somehow I found some pictures of the cross or maybe I drew, I, I could draw the simple stuff. Um, we put this track together and on the back, I made this big, the whole back panel, I made this big cutout form. Like if you would like to know more about the Lord, you know, fill in this form with your name and address, send it to us and we will send, and you can, and I had little check boxes that they could check off what they want. Check this box if you want a Bible, check this box if you want um, The Next Step by Jack Chick, which was like a, a book for new believers. And I think I had a book on there. It might've been by Divine Design um, from Mike. Um, but anyway, we started passing these out and you know, we put out a hundred of them. And what we would do is take them down to Office Depot and photocopy them. And then we'd mm -hmm. get together and fold them. We'd go down into downtown Fort Worth or different places and we'd pass them out to whoever. And I remember the first time we got one of those back, I was ecstatic. Yeah. Um, we had put out a lot and we were wondering like, why isn't anybody sending these back? But we finally got one back. Um, and I remember we had bought a box of these paperback uh, gift Bibles and we sent out, we started sending out the Bibles. And then one day we got a response back and we were all in shock because this response was definitely our track. I mean, our track was put together by some teenagers in Fort Worth produced on a photocopy machine at Office Depot. This was not a major publication. And we got a letter from Ghana, Africa. It was postmarked Ghana, Africa, and it had our track inside of it. What? And the guy from Ghana was asking for a Bible. I have no idea how that happened to this day. I don't know how that wow. happened. We sent, I don't even remember exactly what all options he checked off, but we sent that to him. And, um, and that was a lesson to me. I thought, you know, here you are in Fort Worth passing these tracks out. You're constantly second guessing yourself. Is this really working? Whatever. Just remember that if you're serving the Lord, you know, he can use your humble little Office Depot photocopy track and he can get it to Ghana, Africa if he wants to, um, because, because it's his work. It's not our work. Um, so those were the days when those were, you know, the exciting new days where I was learning evangelism. I was trying things out. I was trying to rally friends around me. Uh, it wasn't long before we got a video series from Ray Comfort about, it was called excellence in evangelism. And he talked about how to go down and do, um, how to do effective open air preaching 
um, different techniques for, for handing out tracks. And there was a time when I was able to organize a group of people at my church and we would every weekend, every like Saturday, we would, we would get together in the evening and we would watch one of his videos. We, would ha we had a bunch of tracks that we'd ordered all ready to go. And then we would go down into downtown Fort Worth to this area called the Water Gardens. Um, and there's a lady in our church who could do chalk art. And she would set up her easel and she would start to draw this chalk picture. And, P and the rest of us would kind of all stand around and watch. And people would kind of start to, who were just strolling through the park, they would stop and kind of watch. Like, oh, here's this street artist who's drawing this cool picture. What's it going to be? And once we had a little crowd gathered, and this was kind of a trick I learned from Ray Comfort, you wait until you have a little starter crowd gathered up. And then once they're there, then you hop up on, and he, he would always bring a little stepladder with him. So that's what we did. We brought a stepladder, and I had made this big sign that I put on the ground in front of my ladder. And on the front of it, it said God's law. And it had not, not the Ten Commandments, but several major commandments from, I think, from Mark that Jesus had quoted to a guy. And so I'd stand up there and I would preach to the, to the crowd while they watched this drawing now that I had their attention. And then I, when I got to the point of presenting the gospel after I'd done the law, I would flip my sign around and on the back of it, it said God's grace. Uh, and it had some passages on you know, the, the, uh, the grace of God um, and how Christ has, you know, has died for us and how we, you know, we don't have to be condemned under the law because Christ took our curse on himself and so forth. And then I would present the gospel. So this is the kind of thing that we were doing um, and this, this would have been um, in the, in the post-Hong Kong years there. So this was going on. And then when I was 18, so another two years down the road, the same guy is a fellow named Jesse Beal. He worked with, he, we, he and I ended up working together for many years. But Jesse Beal said, hey, we're organizing a new trip, kind of like what we did in Hong Kong, but it's a different country. We're going to go to this country called Ukraine. And we wanted to know, you've been on our team before in Hong Kong. Would you be interested in coming with us to Ukraine? Um, and Jesse and I didn't hit it off real great the first time we met. There was definitely some, uh, some friction there between me and him and different, different ones on the team. But apparently it, was, it wasn't bad enough that he didn't want to work with me again. And he, he invited me to come. Um, and I ended up going as an 18-year-old. Um, flew with his team to, um, to Ukraine went through horrible homesickness. It hit me like a ton of bricks. When I'd been to Hong Kong, I'd been to Mexico, I'd done several things, never struggled with that before in my life. Went to Ukraine and just suffered from literally debilitating homesickness. Really? I remember a couple of days at the beginning when I, I almost couldn't get out of bed. I was so upset. I was so, I missed my family so much. And it was just the, the reality that I was going, this was a much longer project. It was supposed to be for six months. And the reality that I was going to be away from my family, my parents, my brothers and sisters for a full six months and miss out on their lives. Uh, it was a psychological thing. And I definitely think it was something that Satan was trying to use to, to turn me away or get me to give up early. But it was, it was a huge challenge. But my parents, How I talked with them on the last? phone. Um, the, the worst of it was the first three, four days. Um, there were some other events that happened uh, in conjunction with my trip overseas. I didn't go directly to Ukraine. I had to go to New York. They were gathering some people there. We were in New York for two or three days, and then we flew together over to Kiev. And during the time in New York, some, some bad things happened. Some very unexpected, stressful conflicts came up. And, and on top of that, it was this homesickness. And I, looking back, it was, it, was, it was textbook satanic attack, him trying to keep me from getting over to Ukraine. Um, and I remember calling my parents and, and just weeping on the phone and talking with them and wondering what to do. And they encouraged me, Joshua, you need, you know, God has called you to do this. Wow. It's not easy. You need to push through it. Um, we're behind you. Uh, don't worry. You know, it's only going to be six months. You'll be back. We're going to keep in touch. And we think you need to go. That's don't give awesome. up. Most and parents so, would have said, come home. Yeah, you're, you're okay. Yeah. Come back. 
Yeah. Um, and so I said, okay, well, uh, and, and that's always been, and again, the relationship when it came to knowing Romans and getting on the street and telling people about Christ, a lot of that I got from Mike, uh, a lot of that training came from Mike Pearl. But when it came to the nature of my relationship with my parents and the way that I had learned to respect them, to honor their counsel, to confide in them, to draw strength from their encouragement, that went back to what I learned from Bill Gothard. Bill Gothard yeah. um, it was his teaching that I think that God used to influence my life, to strengthen my relationship with my parents in those early teenage years. Um, Something that God obviously used for you yes. to get into the mission field. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and there were many times where it was their leading and their encouragement that kept me from giving up, that kept me from turning back. So anyway, I got off to Ukraine. Um, and as you might expect, that was something that God really used in a powerful way to direct my life. I went to Ukraine and one of my first impressions as we started ministering there was that if people in Fort Worth weren't always very interested to hear what I had to say, and everybody in Fort Worth has been born again two or three times, I've all heard about it. Um, in Ukraine, people listened, they were interested and looking back. Yeah, probably some of that was novelty. Um, but whatever the case was, I mean, it, it could be a, a, a nice little dose of a, you know, a prophet is not without honor, except in his own country, whatever the case was, I was there to tell them about Christ. We would do these little outdoor open air meetings and people would gather around and they would listen. And I thought, wow, this is great. I can, I can get a lot more traction here. If I could just learn the language, uh, we could really get something done. And at that time, God, um, God allowed me to make some very key friendships, um, with, both with American missionaries who were working there, who had started a, a church, um, and with Ukrainians, local Ukrainians, people who had grown up during the Soviet Union, who had stories about this one guy that I became friends with named Yura, told me stories about his dad being arrested by the KGB and different things like that. Um, but one very interesting thing happened, getting back to my initial testimony about salvation, especially as a child. There was one night when we were in Ukraine there in Kiev, and um, Jesse was the the um, Jesse and his wife Teresa were the leaders of the project. Um, he was in his probably late forties at the time, and all of the rest of us were all either late teens or a couple of them were early twenties. But they got the team together one evening and said, "Hey, let's let's go around and everybody uh, share your testimony, how you came to Christ." Okay, so great. So we're all sitting around, and we've got about six or eight of us in the room. And different testimonies are coming out. A lot of these kids that were there were second-gen Christians. They were they were um, raised in Christian homes. And this one gal who was maybe two, three years older than me shared her testimony. And she was actually a pastor's daughter. And her testimony hit me like a ton of bricks because the essence of it was this. She said, I supposedly got saved when I was a kid. And I went to this, uh, I forget what she said, but it was, it was some classic thing, a youth camp or something. And I raised my hand and I said the prayer, but I didn't know what I was talking about I, or I didn't know what it meant. And I wasn't really saved. And I, I, was, I still lived in sin. I did these things and, and I knew I wasn't saved and I, I knew I was a hypocrite. But as, as time went by, I was more and more embarrassed to say anything about it because I didn't want to, I didn't want to admit that I'd been a fake all this time. And, but I was starting to get really worried about my eternity and I didn't know what to do. And finally, one night, and, and, and I think when she, I think she had said that her initial conversion, the false conversion, had happened when she was five, which was the same age that I supposedly got saved. So she goes on through her testimony, and then she says, you know, along about when I was 12 or 13, I finally was able to swallow my pride. And one night, I went in my parents' bedroom, and I was crying. And I said, you know what, mom and dad, I'm not really, I know that I'm not a real Christian. I didn't, I didn't know what was going on. And 
would you help me out? I, I want to, I want to get saved for real. I want to really ask Christ into my heart and, and become a believer. And so they, they did. And, and she, yeah, you know, praise the Lord. That was when I really got saved. And so God saved me despite my false conversion and my initial pride, I came to the Lord and that left me stunned. And I, and for the first time after all this had happened, after, after supposedly coming to Christ at five, and witnessing to my sister and basic seminar and meeting Mike and evangelism and tracks and hounding everybody in my area and being, you know, known on even on some level amongst my friends as kind of like this fanatical guy who just wants to tell everybody about Jesus and pass out tracks all the time and won't leave us alone. That guy, me, all of a sudden, for the very first time, I doubted my salvation. And I you, thought you doubted the, the five year old transformation or you doubted your current standing? Um, to me, they were connected. In other okay. words, I reasoned thusly that if, if she was a false conversion at five, why was my conversion any different? Really, what could I know at five? I had learned so much. Um, and when I saw the gospel of people, there was a lot more to it than what I remember hearing from my dad. And I just, when I looked back, I was racked by fear because I thought, wait a minute, if I wasn't saved then, then maybe all this time I've been trusting mm. in a false conversion. Maybe I've been a fake this whole time. And so there were, of course, it wasn't long before I came across some of the common, um, you know, uh, remedies that people propose for doubts about salvation. Well, you just need to go and, you know, reaffirm your salvation. So maybe you just don't have assurance. And so I, I said, I, I would get in my, you know, closet or whatever. And I would say, Lord, I, maybe I didn't know what I was talking about, but if I didn't, if I, if I wasn't sincere or I didn't understand, I'm sincere now, I want to be a believer, please, you know, come into my heart and save me. And it didn't work. I, I didn't have any, or I say it didn't work. I didn't have any confidence. Right. And then the, these thoughts would come like, well, if, if you were, if you weren't really saved then then your baptism was also spurious so you need to get rebaptized and but you know and i was feeling some of the same pangs of shame or at least the potential for shame of saying like wow have i really been a fake this long and it seemed it seemed you know the height of embarrassment to stand up and say you know what everybody i've i i haven't even been saved this whole time i i'm just now becoming a christian going going back to square one so that set off a period of of torture really for about three years where oh I, I, I was torn up about this and I continued, it was, it was interesting because I continued ministering. I continued um, sharing the gospel with others. Uh, I was very active uh, and there were times when it bothered me worse than others, but there were times when I was so, um, so burdened by this, so torn up that people on the outside could tell something was wrong. And I remember some, one time somebody coming up and saying, Josh, can we pray for you about something? I mean, you, you look really blue. Uh, and I was, I mm. was, I was I, looking back through my thought processes. I feared and do fear God. And I thought like this, if my salvation was fake or was wrong, it doesn't matter. I didn't, I didn't suspect myself of being insincere or being two faced. I was very sincere and I knew that, but I felt like the more I looked back at my childhood five-year-old conversion, the more I began to question whether it could have been genuine. Could I have, is it even possible for a five-year-old to know enough to understand or to be good, come to the, the area of moral awareness that he can believe the gospel? Right. Um, you know, if somebody had said that uh, a six-month-old had done that, I would have said, that's, that's ridiculous. You can't know enough 
at six months old. Not that, the, not that the gospel is based on knowledge, but the gospel does presuppose that a person has, has had a chance to become a sinner and has at least reached the point where they can understand the law, their state, and believe on the gospel as a means of salvation. And right. the, more I looked at my, the more I looked at my life as a five-year-old, I didn't remember any of that. Like I said at the beginning, my initial motivation didn't have anything to do with um, with accountability or eternity at all. I just had this idea that there was something about being a Christian that I didn't have. My friend became a Christian, uh, that we were very competitive. I wanted to be a Christian. And so that pushed me and my dad shared the gospel with me. So, and I thought to myself, you know what? If I show up at the judgment seat and find out that I wasn't a real Christian, it's too late. It doesn't matter. There's no excuse. It doesn't matter why it didn't work, why I was a false conversion. Um, hmm. I'm, I'm done for. I'm, I'm off to hell, and that's it. Uh, and this terrified me. Um, but at this I, time, you already understood the concepts of righteousness imputed and freedom from yes. sin to some degree. Yes, I Interesting. did. But, and I, 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 I had every confidence in the gospel as a concept. In other words, if someone had, had, had asked me, do you think that Christ's blood might not be enough to pay for your sins or for everybody's sins? I would have said, no, that's preposterous. He died. His blood is eternal. He can pay for everybody. I knew the doctrine. What I, what I had where my faith was lacking was in myself, really, hmm. is what it came down to. When I looked at me, I knew myself to be fallible. Even in my best times, I was, was, you know, I could make mistakes. And I thought, you know what, if I have not believed the right way, if I've not been sincere, um, and I'm not a Christian, then, you know, all bets are off. This is terrible. And I remember one time, it got so bad, I was at a I was at a Bible camp in Cane Creek that Mike was teaching, and he preached this really hellfire and brimstone message. I think it was an attempt to weed out some tears. And, um, and it just left me stunned and terrified and, and just almost beside myself. I didn't know what to do. And so, and, and, you know, Mike knew me by this time we had done things together. He had stood behind me, supported me, you know, encouraged me, discipled me, all this stuff. So after the, um, after that message was over uh, and everybody else kind of went back to their bunks, we were all living out at this, uh, church building they had built up on stilts at his property. I knew I had a little bit of insider access there. So I went back up at, at night. I went up to his house. It was like, it was like Nicodemus coming to see Jesus, you know, in the middle of the night. <laughs> I went up to his house and I sat down with him and I said, look, Mike, I just gotta, I just gotta let you know. And I spilled the beans to him. I said, look, this is what I'm dealing with. Here was my testimony. I thought I was saved. And now I've, I've been struggling with all this fear and whatever. And what I half expected him to say is something like, yep, it's about time. Well, I'm glad okay. you finally got that together. Let's get you saved for real. But that's not what he said. He told me a story. He's, it was kind of an anecdotal, maybe a contrived story, but it stuck with me. He said, let's imagine that you live in the woods with your family, kind of little house on the prairie style situation, and your mom sends you to the general store in town to buy salt. Have you heard this story? Yeah, yeah, that's good. And uh, so I'll just go through it again for the sure. listeners here. So, so you go through, but you, you, know, you live out in the woods and you have to go down this long trail to get to the general store. So you go down the trail, and uh, it takes you half the day to get there. And finally, when you get there, you see some friends and you chat with the bar with not the bartender, but the uh, the store owner. And you walk through the store and you pick up some potato chips and a Snickers bar and a few other things. And and you get all the stuff and you you know hopefully get the salt. You're not sure, but you you, know, you wait. You get all the stuff and it's just kind of this big blur. A lot of things happen and you talk to a bunch of people and you're you're jolly and everything. You check out. You got a paper bag full of stuff and you're walking back to the house. And you're about halfway back. It's already late. Store's closed. And all of a sudden this thought hits you, wait a minute, did I get the salt? 
that's I what I, I came for. <laughs> I, yeah, that's what I came for was the salt. I talked to the store owner. I talked to my friends. I, I bought some chips. I had a great time. You know, I saw so-and-so's new horse. And I can't remember if I get the salt. So he said, if that happens, don't, the wrong thing to do would be to sit down on the side of the path and get introspective and start looking in your memory and going back through the steps and saying, now, wait a minute. I remember I went to here and then I talked to so-and-so and then that's about the time I would have walked down the salt aisle. I actually <laughs> pick it up and put it in the back. Oh, I can't remember. And this was this kind of resonated with me because it reminded me of what I had been doing. I had been mm -hmm. trying to look back. I had tried so hard to remember what my parents had said to me, what the words were that I prayed, what the nature of the conversation was. Did I really, was I given enough information? Did I really, what, what, what frame of mind was I in? All this stuff, I was just analyzing my experience. And every time I came away discouraged because there were always, it was always full of holes. There was always plenty of reasons that I, if someone else was talking to me, I would have just said, come on, guy, are you, are you serious? There's no way. Um, but he said, don't, don't sit down on the side of the path and try to remember if you've got the salt. If you're yeah. not sure, if you have a doubt, there's a very simple remedy. Just look in the bag. <laughs> and that was when I began. And, you know, you would think when I heard that that it would have been like a bolt of lightning, like, oh, that's it, that's the solution. And all the doubts just fly away and never had any trouble with that again. That's not what happened either. Okay. But I heard that and it was the beginning of how I began to realize that my salvation was not based on a conversion experience that has to happen in a certain way. You know, you pray this certain prayer or whatever, right. that it's a positional thing. It's not, well, yes, the new birth is a point in time and that's that's significant. We don't, we're not born, born again. We. There's a point in time when a person gets born again. On the other hand, the scriptures point out the importance of being in Christ. And in fact, there is a verse that speaks directly to the potential doubter. It's in 2 Corinthians, I believe. Um, I don't remember the reference off the top of my head, but he says, he says, know ye not that ye are in Christ. He says, examine yourselves whether ye be in the faith. Mm -hmm. Know ye not that ye are like in Christ, except ye be reprobates. I'm not quoting it exactly right. But the, the, the crux of the verse is examine yourself not to see what prayer you prayed, not to see whether you were in the right frame of mind when, when a conversion experience occurred at some point on the timeline in the past. Look where you are now. It's like the, it's like the analogy of Noah and the ark. What matters is not remembering what the time was when you got on the ark. For some people, that might be a big deal. They might have happened to look at the time when they got on the ark. What yep. matters is are you in the ark? Because if you're in the ark, you're safe. If you're not in the ark, you're in jeopardy. Exactly. And the and then some things began to dawn on me, and I thought, you know what? I've my doubts have always been have always revolved around me, around yeah. what I can do, my experience. Was I sincere? Was I not? Did I believe right? Did I not believe right? I know a lot of people struggle with that. Like, what does it mean to believe? Am I believing the right way? Do I have enough faith? All of this focused on me, and and for all that we focus on ourselves and try to find assurance, we'll never get it because we know ourselves to be sinners. We know ourselves to be fallible. There's not going to be anything except doubt and fear and darkness there. But then I begin to ask myself questions on the other side and say, well, do you ever have any doubts about what Christ did? That's did you it. doubt that? Was there really, a, there really a man named Christ who was God in the flesh who died for you? And my answer was a very confident, yes, of course, I've never doubted that. Not, I mean, not for the time that I've known it. Um, did you ever doubt that his blood was enough? For example, could you countenance a scenario where Jesus has risen from the grave, he brings his blood to the mercy seat, lays it on the throne and says, Father, this is this blood is to pay for the sins of the whole world. And by the way, it also includes Joshua Steele. 
And at that point, the father would have said, wait a minute, whoa, I, no one said anything about Joshua. Uh, not, <laughs> no, this, this blood, this can't cover Joshua Steele. Maybe Susan over here, you know, maybe Dan, but not Joshua. No, there's no way. Well, I, of course, I laughed too at myself. And I said, no, that, that's ridiculous. I mean, there, I knew to myself to be a sinner, but I also understood that Christ's blood being eternal could pay for the sins of the whole world. Right. No doubts there. And I began to, and I began to realize that the crux was not in trying to pin down whether or not my, my experience at five was the point when I was born again. What mattered was knowing that right now in the room where I sat, right now I was believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and yeah. nothing else for salvation. Um, and it's in, in, in later years, I've had conversations more on a theological conceptual level, kind of picking apart the situation. And I've had guys that said, no, there's no way you were saved at five. That must've happened later. Um, but I remember, you know, the gist of what Mike tried to convince me with his story was, while yes, salvation is a point in time, it's not, the, the, the most important thing is not knowing exactly when you got saved. It's knowing that, you, knowing, like Paul said, it's knowing in whom you believe. It's knowing him and yeah. knowing that you are in him and being able to say, I have no plan B. Um, if, if Christ is not enough, then, then that's it because I'm not clinging to anything else. I'm clinging only to Christ. I know um, that he died for me. I know that he is my savior. And I think to bring it around back to this whole issue of the second generation Christian, in many ways, I feel like I am the quintessential second generation Christian. I was raised, um, I was taught the Bible from day one, from day zero, probably. Um, I was led through a, a sinner's prayer. And right now, as, as years have gone by, and I can look back with less emotional attachment, less fear, I still believe that that experience when I was five is when God brought himself. Now, was that the point spiritually when I was actually born again? Was it possible? Maybe it happened a little bit later when I learned a little bit more. But that was the point as a child when I began consciously to trust in Christ as my That's Savior. Right. And at yeah. any point there after that day as a five-year-old, if you had asked me, Joshua, um, where are you going to be when you die? I would say, well, I'm going to be in heaven. Well, why, why are you so confident? Are you, well, you, you better than everybody else? Why are you so confident that you're going to go to heaven? I would have said, no, because, because Jesus died for my sins. He's, I'm, I'm a Christian. Um, so your, and, confidence, your confidence was in the work of another person. And only when you became right. introspective and started second-guessing how you got to that faith is when you got kind of confused. I often right. use the word confidence and faith somewhat uh, interchangeably, right? Like, where is your confidence in? What are you hoping right. If you're, if you're hoping in a day of conversion, then you're going to constantly be confused for sure. Yep. And so that's one of the reasons why I'm very reticent to ever lead anyone in a prayer, because I know for me, that was a stumbling block. A lot of my, a lot of my focus was around a conversion experience. Um, and I've, I've realized as, as I studied the scriptures and also felt this in my own experience that, that, you know, as we've said, the crux of the matter is being in Christ, it's believing him. It's not about a, an experience that you have at, you know, as a child or, or whatever. Um, and the other thing that I think is, is significant here that I've often brought up to people is 
on the one hand, you have the classic salvation testimonies with the high contrast, like we talked about, a person who grew up in the world, they, maybe they didn't come from a Christian home, and then sometime in their 20s, you know, somebody came to them and they got saved out of a horrible life. And so there's this very visible contrast, you know, before they were a publican and a tax collector, and afterwards they were a disciple of Christ, and you can see that. Does God want, so let's talk about God's ideal for the family. When, a, when that person with the big contrast grows up and gets married and has a family, does God want that, that godly man's children to have their day sowing wild oats, to get out in the street and become drug dealers and have a horrible life just so they can have the contrast? Is that really the will of God for Christian families? I don't think so. No. I don't think there's any, in, in one sense, it's nice to be able to see the contrast. We feel like that gives us some equilibrium, but I don't think there's any virtue in spending the first 20 years of your life uh, living in the world and being evil. And so it brings up the question, okay, we, we've, we've talked a lot about second-generation Christians and the danger of kids just sort of being on the coattails of mom and dad and never coming to know the Lord. On the other hand, it's obvious that a person living for years in the world and in sin is not great. So what's, what's God's ideal? What does God really want for the Christian family? What, how does he want second-generation Christians and third-generation and fourth-generation Christians to come to Christ? Um, and I believe that the answer to that is that we who are believing parents, we need to share the gospel with our, with our children regularly from before the time they understand it. We need to involve them in the work of the gospel that we're doing. Let them see how we go out and how we tell others about Christ, how we print tracts and why we do that. Talk to them about it, but not push them into a conversion experience, right. not get them to a point where you say, okay, you know, you're, you're 12 years old, it's about time now that you're ready to pray the prayer. I mean, you know, you know, you, you don't want to go to hell, do you? And I think as parents, especially believing parents, there's a, there's sort of an urgency that we feel for our kids, because what, what greater asset could you want for your children than to know that their souls are sealed for eternity right. with the Lord Jesus. And yet I think we, we risk souring the, uh, the the ointment or whatever the whatever the correct idiom is messing it up the picture by by putting our hands in there and trying to manufacture something prematurely that's Absolutely. not really the work of Christ and I think we need to give our kids a chance to grow up a little bit to hear the claims of the gospel to understand the law to understand their position and then like when Paul said in Romans seven I was alive without the law once you know early childhood but when the commandment came sin revived and I died. That's, That's right. a description of a man coming to moral awareness outside of a Christian family. I think when that moment happens for a kid living in a Christian family, whether that's when he's five or 10 or 15, if he's been given the gospel, I think the ideal is when one day he wakes up and says, oh, wow, I've sinned against God and the wages of sin is death. Oh, my goodness, what's going to happen? Oh, wait a minute. That's what that means. They've been telling me all this that's time right. that Jesus died for my sins. Oh, phew, I'm so glad. Great. I, I'm, I'm glad I don't have to worry about that. Jesus died for my sins. Okay, here we go. And it's yeah. like the moment he becomes, he becomes aware of his need for the gospel, the knowledge of the gospel is right there. And the time, ideally, between the two, I don't think needs to be long. It doesn't need to be years. So we don't need the one extreme of years and years in the world living in darkness and sin just so we can have the contrast. We also don't need artificially manufactured childhood conversions, which lead to doubts and, and, uh, and tears in the wheat and all of that mess. We need families where the gospel is regularly sounded, 
without any psychological manipulation Amen. and children are are taught the facts of the gospel just like they're taught the facts of the american revolution or or whatever other history they're taught that jesus died for sinners and when the time comes that they realize that that message has relevance for them the message is there in their hearts and their minds they have the opportunity to believe and be saved and jump right in and go on beautifully said yeah no i i love that i i've often used the um with several of my children now, while I'm disciplining them, you know, the age eight or nine or 10 or something like that, they're getting some discipline from me and I'm explaining to them, you know, I never spank your mom. You know, I never spank your older siblings. I don't, I don't deal with them in that way. You know why that is. And then I'll tell them again, you know what Christ did for us. And the, the, this punishment that he took was in place of our sin. And now you have sin and I can yep. deal with this one of two ways. I can go ahead and treat you like a child again and discipline you in that sense. Or I can ask you if you want to put your faith and trust in him. And I'm not going to pressure you. I'm not going to pray any prayer. But if you, can, if you can in your mind find rest for your soul and rest from the guilt of conscience with this sin that you've just committed through looking to Jesus, then my job here is done as far as discipline goes. You need to change the way you're doing things. But it's, you know, you've kind of graduated at that point. And that's, that's mm -hmm. been my goal with all the children is that at that moment, as soon as they recognize their guilt and their shame. And, I, and the other thing I think that a lot of us struggle with is that sometimes they might not come to that realization until they hit a place of actual responsibility or actual independence. Like yourself, when you moved off to some foreign place or uh, a young man that I know of that moved from Texas up to BC recently for the summer and something about the responsibility, the weight of being on his own really kind of hit home and he's like what have i been doing i've been neglecting this gospel the whole time and he knew it from a child right so that's yeah. a pretty neat way of considering it yeah so that was uh that was my start in ukraine and also the beginning of that three-year period of of dealing with doubts and then right about then after after that project in ukraine ended there we were we ended up being in ukraine for about five months i came back to the states and the guy who had organized it had asked me um, he said, hey, would you be interested in coming back to Ukraine for a longer project? They, he Up to that point, he had been doing these short, like four to six month projects, different places. Um, but he had also seen a lot of potential there. And he said, hey, I'm thinking about maybe coming back and doing a five year project and trying to learn the language and maybe help get some churches started or whatever. Would you like to come back and be on the team for something of that magnitude? And I was like, oh, yeah, that sounds wonderful. Okay. And um, so I went home. Uh, as soon as I got off the plane, told my parents about that. Mom wasn't really thrilled. She's like, I just got you back after six months and you want to go back for five years. Um, but I, I spent some time working, um, worked actually on staff a little bit with Bill Gothard's ministry, did some just normal work, earned some money. And then when I was 21, I ended up going back uh, full time as a single man. And I have essentially lived in Ukraine uh, and ministered in Ukraine uh, ever since that time. Okay. Now you mentioned before that uh, people seemed open to hearing the gospel. What would you say that the uh, the climate or the culture is like there? Would it be considered an unreached? I know they would have very old traditional type churches there, but as far as the gospel and actual understanding of the scriptures on the mainstream level, was it there at all or was it completely new concepts? It was there some. A lot of what I was seeing was the tail end of the of the phenomenon that was touched off by the collapse of the Soviet Union. A lot of the former Soviet bloc countries, when the Soviet Union collapsed, it was like a vacuum was released because under the Soviet Union, it was it wasn't technically, but it was essentially illegal to be a Christian. They tried to make it really hard for you if you were if you wanted to go to church or be religious in any way. It was definitely an atheistic society. Um, 
And so when the Soviet Union collapsed and a lot of these satellite countries like Ukraine got their independence, all of a sudden they weren't under those constraints anymore. They could do whatever they wanted to. And also because the borders opened up, a lot of everything just poured in. Mm-hmm. Evangelical missionaries, but also you know the JWs, the Mormons, the Hare Krishnas, uh, all kinds of junk just came in. And but the Ukrainians were hungry for it. And in the in those days, in the early '90s, like before I was there, you could almost just get a little Gideon's New Testament and a guitar, go out on the street and say, "Hey, everybody, church at my house at seven o'clock. Here's the address," and you'd have people come because these wow. people were destitute their economy was had collapsed they were their currency was was gone they were they were using these um they called them karbovansi they were like these little coupon uh currency they didn't have they didn't have a real currency people were having a hard time and so this was a time in ukraine at least of of great opportunity and great revival and a lot of the major churches that are established today in ukraine like evangelical churches Hail back to that period of time. In fact, the church that we work with most closely in Lviv was established by an American missionary who came across from Poland in 1992. So okay. only a couple of years after the fall. Um, and when I got there the first time in 97, that was beginning to wane. <clears throat> People were starting to reach a saturation point. There had been so much that was so much JW's, uh, JW doctrine or the Mormons or all this stuff. There came a point when the Ukrainians finally said, hey, that's enough. We, we're just going to go back and do like our traditional thing, which was more like the Orthodox Church or Greek Catholic, depending on where you were. But there were still a lot of people who were struggling, who were having a hard time financially. And you have this young fellow who's 18, who's an American young man who comes over here and wants to talk to you. There was still a lot of draw there. Now, it's it's a lot different. It's more, if you, if you try to go to Ukraine, now, the, of course, the war has changed things, but pre-war period, if you tried to minister to people in Ukraine, in many ways, it was similar to what you would expect in the States. Um, you have people that have heard the gospel many times, or you have people that just are doing their own thing. They're materialistic. They're just not interested. There's a lot of apathy. Um, in the early years when I was there, in the early 2000s, we, especially being in the West, we ran into a lot of resistance from uh, the Catholic Church, from traditional Christians who felt like we were uh, members of a sect who were trying to influence their young people and all this sort of thing. Um, but be that as it may, God, um, it, was, it was actually very difficult. And I knew of people in, you know, in those early years in the 2000s, people who came to Ukraine, tried to get a ministry started and just got discouraged, got burned out and left and went home. Um, and I have my own stories of, of my, the early years of my ministry after I was there full time of trying different things working with some more traditional church plants. I even worked with a guy in Lviv in the early 2000s who was one of the fellows that had established a church in Kiev back in the 90s. When okay. we came to Kiev, it was his church that we worked with, and it was a vibrant, big, uh, it was a Baptist church, very excited, they had a little Bible school going. I mean, it was the textbook classic success story for missionaries. Um, and they had established it basically with, you know, the whole Gideon New Testament guitar on the street formula. Well, in 2002-ish, he came to Lviv and basically said, hey, I want to come and do the same thing here in Lviv that we did in, um, in Kiev. And it didn't work. Hmm. Um, we got, what happened was we rented a building. We, uh, and I was kind of a junior partner in this. Um, I was sort of following his lead. He knew Russian really well. I was still, you know, learning Ukrainian. We got a building, we started inviting people to come to services, and what we found was as soon as people heard that we were Baptist, that was it. They just, they wrote us off. They didn't want to have anything to do with it. Oh, really? 
Um, it was like, you know, if, if a Mormon showed up at your door and said, hey, we're having a Bible study at our Mormon church at Wednesday night, you know, what are the chances that you're going to say, well, you know, let's just go down there and try to be objective and evaluate what they have to say. Who knows? Maybe we've been wrong all this time. You're probably not going to do that. Um, right. And it was kind of a similar situation. And I be and it was a teaching moment for me because I began to look around and say, look, we were whatever method here that we're using is not working. And the only people we're able to really minister to are the people that we can convince to come to our meetings, whether that's a church service, a Bible study, whatever. If we can get them in the door, we've got something to say to them. But if we can't get them in the door, we are really limited. And these people are not turning away from us. I begin to realize this. These people are not turning away from us because they don't agree with our message. They don't have a chance to hear the message. They're turning away mm. from us because of us because we're weird, because we're Baptist, or we're foreigners, or whatever, or they already have a church, thank you very much, I can't be bothered. Um, all of those reasons are standing in the way, and we're not actually able to get the gospel to them. And I saw this as a major problem, because I felt like my responsibility as a missionary is to communicate the gospel. Now, if yeah. you the gospel, and a person rejects it, having understood it, then okay, that's between them and the Lord, there's nothing else I can do. But if they are rejecting me before they get a chance to hear the gospel, if I'm in essence blocking my own message, then there's something wrong. I need to change right. my tactic. I need to change my approach to do what to, to pull these blocks out of the way so that I can get my message through to them. And that kind of thinking was what led us in the early years to build our Bible first course to write that correspondence. Course. Okay. Um, and um, so I, I don't know if we want to go down that whole so trail. It, it that was, was a, a cultural divide in a sense where they just didn't like the flavor of the Baptist church. They didn't like the attitude that they'd been hearing or seeing for the last couple generations, perhaps. There were a variety of reasons, but I would say in the West of Ukraine, where we were um, the, the in the early 2000s, the most common objection was I'm Catholic. If you're not Catholic, we really have nothing to say to each other because I'm not looking to change my religion. So if you're Baptist, and in the early days, even there was some crazy stuff. They they would spread rumors about the Baptists that they, you know, worshipped demons and sacrificed kids, and I mean all kinds of outlandish wow. claims, with no basis. But but people were very superstitious. They ran scared, and if you told them you were a Baptist, they just didn't want to have anything to do with you. Now, one thing that encouraged me was the few times that I actually was able to sit down with one of these, you know, died in the wool Catholics and tell them what I believed. If I could get somebody that didn't yet know that I was associated with this Baptist church, and I could tell them that I believed that Jesus Christ was the Savior of the world, that I believed that salvation was by grace through faith alone without any works that I could add, that I believed that the Bible was the Word of God, that there was one God, and he wrote the Bible for all people, not just for one religion. I even used to tease people. I said, I would say, do you think that Jesus was Greek Catholic or Roman Catholic? Or maybe he was Orthodox. Um, which do you think he was? And of course, they would laugh because I mean, he's, he's Jesus. He's not any of those things. Um, but what I found was that when I actually had an opportunity to share the gospel with somebody and talk to them about the work of Christ and imputed righteousness and these things, they would agree with me. It rang really? true for them. And they would not object. Very rarely someone would say, no, 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 I don't think you, I don't think that's right. I think you have to, you know, be a member of the Catholic church and be baptized as a baby to be saved or whatever. And so this, this told me that, you know what, if I can get beyond these, these uh, cultural or, or um, methodical hiccups, I can reach people, I can get to them. And so that's why we started doing our correspondence course, which allowed us to encourage people to sign up for a correspondence course instead of demanding that they come to a church, which for them mm. was just almost unpalatable. Right. There was such a social stigma against that sort of thing. 
um, that it was very, very difficult. Um, so, and we, we had a lot of success and still do, uh, with getting people into the word of God through the correspondence course. So you could have very easily just taken a bit of a persecution mentality and said, well, they're just persecuting us for our faith. And instead you kind of worked a way to, to get into their homes, into their lives in another fashion, right? I found that, yes. um, I used to be a part of a group where they were very, very conservative, uh, a bit of a Mennonite background. And so the women would all wear long head veils and big cape dresses. They would call themselves plain Christians, right? And uh, I started understanding the gospel better. We were out on the street and went and sing to people too. And I would tell them, all you need to do is trust Christ. And they would look over my shoulder and see what we looked like. And mm -hmm. I could see them kind of calculating in their mind. Okay, you say it's just simply believe, but I think it's going to result in that. And I'm not interested yeah. in that, right? And so right, I started right. realizing that we need to take the cultural barriers away. If this is not right. necessary for salvation, then I got to approach it in some other way, right? So exactly. that left us in a different uh, scenario than you are, but it, it did open up doors for us when we finally put some of those things aside that were not relevant to salvation. And so here you're, you know, reaching people now through a correspondence course. They, were they coming in aware that they were going to be learning scripture or was it just uh, a, a language type of learning thing? No, they were aware. Now, some of them, some of them initially looked at it as more like a, you know, like a Bible discovery show on the, on, on a, on a learning channel or something. Um, but they all knew it was about the Bible. And that was what we found was that the Bible was an area of common ground, at least in this culture, what they re what they reacted against was the concept or what they feared of, uh, like switching churches, like, Oh, am I going to have to come and, uh, join your church or get rebaptized? And in fact, one of the first things that they would ask us when we would go out and pass out the tracts or invite them to join the course, they'd say, which church are you with? And we would say, well, we're not here with a church now. Obviously, we know that we're with the Church of Christ, and we also know that you know we, we had a local body of believers, but we were not promoting a church in the way they were using the word church. To them, a church is the, the, the cathedral you know, in the middle of their village where they all go. Mm -hmm. And in their minds, the proselytizers like us were the ones that wanted, us, wanted to get them to switch their membership. Many times they, they suspected that there was some financial fraud involved there that we we're going to try to get them to like sign their inheritance for their apartment over to us or something. Right. But we would tell them, you know what? Our goal is to encourage people to read the Bible. That's what we want to do. And when we said that, they would say, oh, and we would just tell them, you know what? We work with all denominations. It doesn't matter to us if you want to be Catholic or Orthodox or whatever. That's your choice. We just want to encourage you to read the scriptures. Now, what we didn't tell them up front and what we knew is that if we could just get them into the Bible, then we had a golden opportunity to present the gospel to them in a way that they could actually hear. Now, that didn't guarantee that they would believe the gospel. Ultimately, of course, that was their choice. Mm -hmm. But at least it gave us an opportunity to get around this whole church box issue and actually get the gospel to them very nice and this was when you started using your course that you wrote uh right in the very early days we tried adapting uh some other materials that were already um out there maybe just get them translated in fact we at one point we tried to adapt the firm foundations course from uh it's from the etau crowd um throughout the uh, new tribes new tribes they have a course that's a, it's a it's a um chronological bible course and we were we were very much on board with the whole chronological approach. Interestingly, the Ukrainians are far from tribal. They're a Christian, Christianized society. They're a very educated and literary society, but there also is quite a dearth of Bible knowledge. So on the one hand, people say, well, are Ukrainians, um, you know, have, are they unreached people? Well, 
if you if by unreached you define people like the natives in Papua New Guinea and some dark tribe that haven't actually heard about Jesus and they have no idea who that was, then no, pretty much every there everybody there has heard about Christ. And they have but access they, to the scriptures. Yes, yes, they have access to the scriptures, especially now with smartphones. Even back then they did. Um, but they were still very unreached in the sense that they knew Christ essentially as the figurehead of the religion they had been born into. They were they were Catholics and or Orthodox, what have you, for the same reason that people in Iran are Muslim or that people in India are, I don't know, Hindu or whatever, just yeah. because they were born that way. Probably most people in the world are a part of the religion where they find themselves because they were born into it. It's a, it's a part of their culture. That was definitely the way it was in Thailand when I was there and other other places. And Ukrainians are no different. And so in that sense, they're no more reached than the Buddhists are. And so when we would come in and sit down and say, yes, you've, you've seen the image of Christ on your crucifix. He's painted all over the wall at your church. But do you know why he died? Do you know what that means? Do you understand the idea of righteousness imputed uh, by faith? And a lot of times, especially that issue of imputed righteousness, that was brand new. They'd never heard anything like that. It's so um, liberating when understood, right? Yes, yes. Um, I actually, this is a story for another day, probably, but I, I actually ran into a priest, a Catholic priest in the Carpathian mountains one year when we were down there doing our projects, his name was, uh, father Stepan. And this guy was like a modern day Martin Luther I actually wrote a blog post, um, about our encounter with him. But basically this guy was a priest, a Catholic priest who had come to Christ by reading Romans. Oh, um, wow. and he, he'd almost been kicked out of the Catholic church for what it. What did you say his name was? Stepan. Okay. They called him Father Stepan. I don't even know if he's still there, but he he was. They had they had like hidden him away at this little church in the backwoods of nowhere in the Carpathian Mountains, and uh, we ran into him one day, and um, and that was when I realized, like Elijah, that I wasn't the only guy left. <laughs> that God has God has his people um, in different places. And uh, anyway, that's a that's that awesome. was an exciting story. I I wouldn't mind you touching uh, at least briefly on how you finally brought a wife into this mess of yours. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then and then if we could get into some of the cultural aspects of what's actually happening in Ukraine right now, political things, maybe to some degree. Sure. Yeah, well, I'll try to give you the Reader's Digest version of my story with Kelsey. Um, I when I in 2001, when I came to Ukraine as a single guy, um, I felt like marriage was definitely not for right now. It was for the future. Part of that was because I was a very firm believer that I needed to establish my work in the field first and then build my house, as it says in Proverbs. And I wanted to get established in ministry and I wanted to at least have a good handle on the language where I felt like I was going to be in Ukraine for a time. Um, and I wanted to have that all taken care of and established before I got married. Mm -hmm. So when I first went, marriage wasn't even on my radar. But after a couple of years of being there, I had the language, but after I'd been there for about two years, I was pretty fluent in Ukrainian. I was part of a church, I was preaching, I was involved in evangelism um, in Ukraine. And, um, but I, th I started thinking like, how, how would I even find uh, a potential life partner? Because I have nothing against cross-cultural marriages, but I didn't see, you know, a Ukrainian woman in the cards for me. I, for a few reasons, I didn't think that was going to be the best option. But I also didn't feel like I could just go back to go wife hunting. I'd actually been in some circles where that happened. You know, we'd, a couple of times in my childhood, I remember some guy coming into our circle of friends and being introduced like, yeah, this is Fred and Fred's looking for a wife. So he's going to come play volleyball. <laughs> while you guys. We're like, oh, wow, that's weird. Um, I didn't want to do that. 
And so I just thought, you know, Lord, uh, I don't know how I'm going to find a wife, but maybe, you know, if you want me to be married, you can bring someone along. And so there were, there were a few almost, a few um, not quite startups, uh, some, some relationships where I tried to take a step or, or see if there was possibility. And God closed the door, like right at the beginning, uh, where it was very pretty obvious that no, that wasn't going to work out. Um, but then one day I was in Thailand, actually. Um, there was, there was a time in, uh, from 2003, latter part of 2003 to early 2004, when I, I spent about seven months in Thailand. And this was a project that Mike had started. Uh, it ended up closing, but, um, I was there with it for about seven months. And during my time in Thailand, I had gotten this email from my sister, Jennifer in the States, same, my, the second born, same girl that I had, uh, mm -hmm. same sister that I witnessed to when we were kids. She writes me this email and she says, Hey, Joshua, I think I may have found the girl for you. Her name is Kelsey. And she, had, my sister, Jennifer and Kelsey had met through, um, again, through Bill Gothard's ministry, through a kind of a girls conference that was being organized. And they had been uh, roommates and, and uh, they were um, both speaking at this conference. Uh, my wife, my wife now, Kelsey and Jennifer. Um, and so, and what, but one line from Jennifer's email really caught my attention. She said, and Kelsey has been praying to marry a missionary. Hmm. And I thought, well, that's very interesting because one of the things that I had been concerned about was I thought, Lord, really, I mean, what kind of a girl in the United States is going to want to marry a guy like me and give up everything she's ever known in the US to go to some country on the other side of the world and, and live the life of a missionary wife? That just does not seem like something that a lot of gals are, are wanting to do. Right. Um, but when Jennifer said that this girl, Kelsey, had been wanting, had been, was interested in marrying a missionary, wanted to go to the mission field, that sort of gave me hope that maybe that could be the Lord, the, the, the hand of God. Um, so to condense a, a long story down into a short one, I had a very firm conviction going back to things that I had learned in Bill Gothard's ministry that I did that any, any girl that I would want to start a relationship with towards, you know, with the potential of, of going towards marriage that I wanted to first approach her father and get his permission, um, to start a relationship with her before I, before I showed any affection to her. Um, and so I felt like that, and I, by this time I had asked a few questions about Kelsey. I'd gotten a little more background. They'd sent me a couple of pictures of her and, um, I felt like, okay, there should be, there could be some potential here. So I knew at that point for me, my next step was to write to her father or contact him in some way. Um, and we had cell phones at the time in Thailand, but they weren't good enough to call or they didn't have, they weren't set up to call internationally. It just wouldn't have worked. So, um, long story short, I, I got my parents, my dad to call her dad. And they didn't know each other. The only real connection between <laughs> our families was uh, was Kelsey and my sister Jennifer. Beyond that, there wasn't really a lot of, of acquaintance, even though we were very similar in terms of background and homeschooling and all of that. So long story short, my dad calls uh, Mr. Powell, Danny, and and says like, you know, my son Joshua is overseas. He's a missionary, and he's, you know, there's the connection between my daughter and your daughter, and my son Joshua is interested in maybe starting a possible relationship, but he wanted to he wanted to reach out to you first. Would it be okay if he wrote you an email and to discuss this? And I kind of thought that would fall flat. Like well, you're, you that's a pretty strange route. Yeah, yeah. We don't know you people. You don't know us. Uh, Joshua's somewhere on the other side of the world. No, but it turns out that Danny and Cindy, Kelsey's parents, <clears throat> praying for her that God would bring a husband to her. And Danny will tell you that he thought it was coming soon, and somehow he had that inkling from the Lord, or somehow that God was going to bring a husband for Kelsey. And so when my dad called, it was almost like he was expecting to get that call. Wow. And he said, he said, yes, have Joshua write me. 
So I wrote an email to him and just said, Hey, I'm Joshua Steele. This is what I'm about. I live, I'm in Thailand kind of temporarily, but I'm really a missionary to Ukraine or in Ukraine. That's sort of my long-term goal. And I'll be heading back. And, you know, I've never met Kelsey. I don't know if it would work, but um, I, I've heard that she's interested in, in marrying a missionary. I, you know, would like to be married. And so I thought, you know, with your blessing, would you be interested in, in allowing us to start um, kind of a, a relationship, a courtship, whatever you call it, and to see if God would lead us to marriage or not. Hmm. Um, and we, we corresponded, he and I, for about three weeks. And he, I said, you can ask me any question you want. Um, I recognize that Kelsey is your daughter. I believe that God has placed you as her head. Um, and so we can go quickly or slowly. You can ask me whatever you want to ask me. Um, and I'm happy to do this however you direct. Nice. Um, and so after about three weeks, he said, you know what, Joshua, he said, I think that, and during that time, he did ask me a lot of questions about who I was and what I believed and all this stuff. And, and he also told me a lot about their family. And at the end of that, he said, you know what, Joshua, I think that the Lord's hand is in this. And I think we need to tell Kelsey and see if she is, if she's interested, uh, because, you know, <laughs> another awkward an step. Marriage. Um, his, his role was more of a, you know, a protection role, but ultimately of course it would, it would be up to her whether she wanted to pursue this or not. So they, um, they finally uh, approached her about it and said, hey, we've been, you know, daddy's been writing to this guy named Joshua uh, overseas, and he's interested in maybe starting a relationship with you if you're open. And here is a stack of newsletters that he's written over the past two and a half, three years that he's been on the mission field. You can read these, find out what he's about and what he's like, and, and decide whether you, you can say no, we can shut the whole thing down and we can just call it done. Um, or if you want to, um, if you want to go forward, um, then we'll tell him that he can send you an email and you guys can, you know, you can take some baby steps and see if the Lord leads. So she kind of, she took all that and locked herself in the room for about three hours. She said, and prayed about it and read through those newsletters. And she said, okay, um, I'll, I'll do it. I'll, I'll say yes to not, obviously not say yes to marriage right. at this yep. point. We, there was no way we could know either of us. We didn't know each other. We'd never met, but say yes to stepping into a courtship, say yes to, exploring, um, uh, getting to know one another and see if God would lead us. So we started corresponding. And this was, again, this was still before smartphones. It was before the ubiquity of instant messaging. Most of our initial correspondence was by email. And we've often commented that, you know, we were as far apart on the globe as it's possible for any two people to be. We were right at 12 hours apart. And if you, if, if either of us had, had moved any further, we'd be going back closer together. Um, <laughs> And so those early days, there were no, there were no dinners uh, out. There were no movies, um, no coffee shops, no holding hands, none of the romance, none of that. We couldn't, we weren't, yeah. we weren't on the same side of the planet. All we could do was email. And so we, we talked about a lot of the more serious things. We talked about our different views and um, our ideas about the family and about ministry and marriage. Um, and as time went on, um, of course, I kept in touch with her parents and so forth and things moved on and then right about the time that i was transitioning from thailand back to ukraine this would have been in april of, of 04 um i i felt like you know what i need to get stateside this is getting serious and i need to get over to this to texas and and meet kelsey so i did uh, i flew back to the states and we spent about nine weeks with kind of like a whirlwind courtship getting to know one another um we had a no touch rule so we didn't hold hands we didn't kiss uh, and, and again, not because we felt like that was a violation of scripture per se, but it was a, it was a personal conviction that we felt like the Holy Spirit was leading us to do. Um, and all, all four of our parents were very much on board with the relationship. Um, they gave us a lot of latitude um, to, to, to talk and to get to know one another, to go places. 
uh, at the time, her parents happened to be up in Canada, actually. Her, hmm. they're, they're from Oklahoma, but her dad worked for ConocoPhillips. And right about the time our relationship was starting, he got transferred up to Calgary for a one-year project. So we spent like half the time, the first few weeks down in Texas, in my home state. And then we flew up to Calgary and spent a few weeks with her parents. Um, and during this time, I actually did propose to her and she accepted and we got engaged while I was in the States. Uh, she ended up coming back with me to Ukraine for a couple of weeks just to see. We, we felt like it was important for her to see what Ukraine was like yeah. in her own eyes. Before what are you she getting into here? She's getting into. <laughs> so she came with me before we were married. She came with me over to Ukraine. She stayed with friends. We looked at an apartment that we wanted to rent, um, and it was pretty rough. The the every the thing she she did not get a sugar coated version of Ukraine. What she saw was the real deal, and uh, it would have I think it would have been enough to turn away a lot of girls. But she was excited. She was committed, and we both felt like God was leading us together. So she flew back uh, to the states to to work on wedding preparations. I stayed behind to try to get the apartment ready and take care of some some other uh, things, and then I flew back closer to time. And we were married on September 18th uh, in 2004, which our, our 18th my anniversary is coming up here in just a few days. Right on my birthday. Very nice. Yeah. So um, we started, our, our relationship started in March of 2004, like March 13th, I think was when, when she found out about it. And we were married uh, right at six months later in uh, September of 2004. <laughs> and then That's we, incredible. We went on a kind of a whirlwind, quick honeymoon, got our things together. And in mid, mid to late October, we flew back to Lviv, right for the beginning of winter, all the drab and cold and, and gray skies and all that. Um, and we have raised our family there and we've lived in Ukraine. Now, of course, we've made visits back to the States. We've yeah. you know, done things, but we have, we have lived our lives, our adult lives and raised our family uh, in Ukraine since that time. Very nice. And the... Uh... I guess to shift the little gears here is the the ministry that you've done. I know for years uh, the Pearls and the No Greater Joy magazine would advertise that you were doing the what was it, something Carpathian. Yes, the Carpathian Mountain Outreach we called it. Uh, that's right, where young guys would go out there and backpack through the woods and or not through the woods but through the hills and get to these villages and hand out tracks, kind of similar to what you might have done in Hong Kong, I guess. Yes. Yeah, we did that. Uh, I hope we can bring that project back. We've we've not been able to do it for the past three years running because initially because of COVID and then this most recently because of the war. Um, but that was a big part of our ministry. And part of it was that because of the way God brought me into mission work and evangelism through short-term missions, that's something that's always had kind of a special place in my heart. And I wanted, just like, just like I was given an opportunity as a young man, as a teenager, to get involved in evangelism and putting out tracks and organizing uh, literature campaigns and those kinds of things, I wanted to give other young men that opportunity to fly overseas, to be in a foreign culture and experience that, to uh, to learn what it's like to do evangelism, everything from tract distribution to street preaching to one-on-one -on -one to what we did in the mountains actually was largely um, showing Christian films. Um, and of course, we added in the um, the camping element because a lot of the places we were going don't have like hotels or good accommodations. And so we would just all bring our tents and backpacks and we would, we would camp nice. overnight. Um, but yeah, we did that for, I think we've done like 12. We used to do one, we used to do a project every summer. And I think we did 12 of them. Uh, wow. What an experience for some of these young guys, I'm sure. Yes. And then the ministry now, what is it that you're currently just involved with the church or are you still doing more of an outreach kind of thing? Um, so CMO had, has always been the, the centerpiece of our, our evangelism outreach in the traditional sense, the time when we go out either onto the street in cities or to the mountains or those kind of places and pass out tracks. The other part that kind of goes hand in glove with our Carpathian outreach, 
um, is our Bible first course. And what we, CMO kind of, CMO is the Carpathian Mountain Outreach, we call it CMO. Um, it kind of had two main, main goals. The one, the obvious goal was, um, you know, ministry in Ukraine. The other goal was to disciple young guys in missions. But a side effect of that was that we had a um, kind of this huge influx of extra manpower every year. And we were able to put out tens, even hundreds of thousands over the years of tracks and invitations to join our correspondence course. And so all the people that were getting those invitations in Ukraine, they were being directed back to this Bible correspondence course that we've developed called Bible First. Mm. And so because every year we were doing this project, that was fueling new students, new people registering in our course. And that Bible First course over time it kind of gained a momentum of its own. And now, even though, even in the off season when we're not necessarily actively advertising it, it's on the internet, people know about it, people share the links and they are signing up, uh, you know, from time to time. And we've, you know, we've got at any given time, we've probably got about a hundred people that are actively going through wow. the course. And so that, that even now, like during the war, as things are going on, that has kind of main, has remained kind of the core of our outreach in Ukraine. And we've also um, started to expand that and make that course available kind of as a missions tool for other people. So it's available. The course is also available in English in addition to Ukrainian. We're actually working real hard right now to get Spanish online. Um, but it's a tool that anybody could use, whether they're in the States or anywhere else, as they're passing out tracks or witnessing to people to to try to transition to that next step. And when you have the classic situation of, you know, you talk to somebody at the airport about the Lord, maybe they're open, you feel like there's a good connection there, but maybe you're not ever going to see them again because you're flying in different directions. Or maybe, maybe they do live in your area, but they're just, they're not ready to like come and join your church yet. There's just too much they've not understood. The correspondence course can be this nice bridge uh, in the middle. It gives you a chance to start a relationship with them and stay in touch in a way that's not awkward. Um, it, it fosters conversation around the scriptures and gives you a chance to use the Bible as the ultimate gospel track to, to continue giving them the gospel. So that, that remains kind of like the core of our ministry, both for Ukraine, where we kind of got our start, but also hopefully broadening out uh, to other fields as well. The other thing that's a big part of our ministry today that's been very relevant is the Good and Evil book. We, uh, we um, organized the translation of Good and Evil several years ago. And we have done two printings. We did the first one in 2008. It was a black and white printing. And then we did another one in 2018, I think, which was in color, our first one in color. And then now with the, with the onset of war in Ukraine, um, NGJ just funded a new printing of 15,000 copies of Good and Evil in Ukrainian. Um, and we are kind of shepherding that through. Um, we've, the, the books are completely printed. They're being packaged right now. I think they're in Kiev. And we're working to try to get them delivered uh, west to the city that we're based out of, which is Lviv. Um, and then hopefully those will be from there distributed to all of the awesome. front lines to, to everybody. So that's been, and, and we've also tied that in. So people that will get a copy of the Good and Evil book, there is information in the back on how they can sign up for the Bible course. And people that enroll in our Bible course, we always tell them about Good and Evil. So we kind of use that as a, as a one-two punch. If we don't get them through one way, we get them the other. Awesome. <laughs> uh, yeah. That's cool. So, so just just trying to immerse yourself in the culture and then get them to immersed in the scriptures is a pretty beautiful setup. I, I'd say that if someone was to ask me, like, what's the core of your philosophy and missions or what's the what's the center of what you do? Um, and, and I realize that missionaries, depending on what time period they're serving in, what culture they're serving in, their own personal giftings and leadings and so forth, this can vary. But for us, 
the area that we have focused most on is trying to involve unbelievers in reading and studying the scriptures, because we feel like that gives us the, at least in Ukraine and the cultures that we've had experience with, that gives us the best chance of getting past these cultural barriers that people feel and giving them the opportunity to actually hear the gospel in a way that they can understand it. And so um, that's, that's where we have focused. Now, we do, a lot of people ask us about church planting or about local church. We do uh, cooperate very closely with a church that's in Lviv. It's, it's not a church that we started. It's this church that I referenced earlier that was started by another missionary in the early 90s. Um, and that church is the one that I found when I very first came to Ukraine full-time in 2001. And they are like my family in Ukraine. They're where I started learning language. When I first got to the field, I knew that language was a priority, and I just sort of threw myself fully into this church. I did everything with them. I played guitar for their music service. I went door knocking with them. I went to their, their every, every service they had. I had them over to my house. We actually shared an apartment with the youth pastor. He was also single at the time, and we constantly had groups of teenagers in our house doing stuff. Um, so I, I, uh, we have been more or less with that church the whole time. And sometimes we collaborate on things together. Sometimes we work separately, but they are, they're kind of like our church, our church family in Ukraine. Very nice. Well, that sounds all almost ideal in a way, the way a mission should go, right? Where you're starting to really infiltrate the culture and hopefully making some good headway and, and teaching them the scriptures. So very nice. I mean, now you're not in Ukraine. You've had to flee in a sense from, from Ukraine, living in Slovakia, Slovenia. Slovakia. Slovakia. There is, there there is Slovenia and there's also Slovakia. Yes, we are in Slovakia. I knew there was two countries and I just wasn't sure right. if I got the right one now. <laughs> yes. So Slovakia, but you can continue a lot of the online correspondence from there, I'm assuming. Right. Of course, we have people that we know who are still in Lviv. Um, not everybody has evacuated. And uh, there's, there's a lady from our church that's newly kind of joined our team um, to help us manage the correspondence course on the ground. So she deals with a lot of the, the physical mail that comes in and out. Um, and so we were able to keep in touch with people that we know there and keep things rolling forward. Uh, we still maintain our home, our apartment in Lviv. In fact, there are refugees who are living in our apartment right now in our absence. Um, and, uh, we're doing what we can from here. There are also a lot of Ukrainians in Slovakia. And so we're trying to, um, you know, to be light and salt here in Slovakia for the Ukrainian community as we're able to. I've been... I've been for the, I, I, after the evacuation, I made uh, like two or three trips back to Lviv uh, initially. And every time I try to like bring across a few boxes of good and evil. So we've kind of gotten a stash of good and evil books uh, built up over here. And we, we try to hand those out as we're able. Um, but in the long term, we, um, we do feel like that uh, Ukraine is going to continue to be our, our main focus. And we're looking forward to being able to go back there. Right on. Well, the one last little thing I wouldn't mind touching on, and maybe you can't really clarify this fully, but um, we really feel like, to a large degree, that media has just been flat out lying to us for, on so many different levels. And uh, our prime minister here in Canada is very anti-freedom of choice. And uh, I'm sure you've probably heard bits and pieces of how he's handled people who protest against his agenda. And it, it has not been good. And so then we hear news coming out of the world's media that uh, Ukraine is being attacked by Russia. And then Ukraine's leader and America's now leader and Canada's leader, they all seem to be in cahoots somehow. And there's so much interaction between those governments and there's such a demonization of Russia that a lot of people on the right wing aren't sure what to believe now. Is, is Russia just being demonized? Is, um, is Ukraine really suffering the way that it seems to be? Or what is the, what is the real thing that's going on behind the scenes here? 
obviously, if you felt the need to flee Lviv, this is no joke, and it's not just a media story, right? Yeah, I can tell you the danger is real. I can I can testify to that from firsthand experience. I'll give you a couple of stories just to sort of uh, drive that point home. Up until early this year, I had never been, I had never experienced waking up in the night to an air raid siren in a city knowing that it was the real deal. It was always a drill or something was broken. But waking up in a modern city in a high rise, well, not a high rise, but a multi-floor apartment with your kids and your wife in the middle of the night, hearing an air raid siren and knowing that that siren is going off because there is a cruise missile potentially heading to your city is a scary feeling. You, mm. you want to get out of that building as fast as you can. You don't know where to go. Um, you've heard there are air raid shelters around. There's a parking garage. And I remember the first night we threw the kids' uh, coats on, grabbed some blankets, and kind of like stumbled out the front door, not knowing really where to go. Um, some other families were out there too. And we decided to head across the street to this big shopping mall um, that where there was an underground parking garage to see if we could get inside. Normally it's closed. You can't just walk in there. But there, they, it had been designated a shelter, and so it opened up. And so wow. at, I don't know, I forget exactly, but it was like 5 a.m. or something. We're sitting there in February with the kids, their pajamas. They've got coats on. Um, we're sitting on this dirty concrete floor amongst a bunch of cars with some Ukrainians and listening to this wailing siren, wondering what's going to happen. And that first night, nothing happened. Nothing hit. But it wasn't long before the next siren happened and the next siren, uh, we had people calling us from other, other uh, parts of the country saying that rockets were landing, that they were seeing explosions. Um, of course, there was the initial push of the, the armored column, Russians pushing down towards Kiev. And we began to realize, Kelsey, as Kelsey and I talked about it, that, you know what, we, for the safety of our children, we need to get out of, out of, out of harm's way and regroup. And so that's why we did. During one of my first trips back to Ukraine, after we had gotten to Slovakia and kind of gotten uh, a little bit established, I took our van to go back to Lviv to get some things. I wanted to, I was, I was eager to try to bring some aid or help bring people out. A lot of people were trying to evacuate. I was involved with um, several different organizations that had like paramilitary people on the ground in different parts of Ukraine trying to organize evacuations. Um, and I was brought in because of my language skills and also because I have a Ukrainian cell phone number and through a service that's popular over there called Viber, I could call pretty much any phone number in Ukraine. And a lot of these Western uh, aid organizations had trouble doing that. They couldn't talk to the people when they did call them. They had trouble calling the numbers. But I could call people who were trapped and say like Kharkiv or Sumy or Chernihiv or these different places and say, hey, if you can send me your location where you are, I'm working with an aid organization and there's going to be a vehicle in your area in a day and we can try to get you on that bus and get you and your family out of there. I did that multiple times. Um, I talked with people who were trapped, who couldn't get out, who, were, who had lost hope. I talked with one family that was stranded in a village. They had no fuel. They were cut off. The, the aid workers couldn't get to them, and they had no food, and they were literally facing starvation in a village in modern Ukraine because of Russian aggression. Um, as I was driving back one time, this is in the early weeks of the war, I was driving through Poland to, um, to Ukraine, and my longtime friend, Ruslan, who we, he was the guy, the youth pastor that I shared an apartment with so many years ago, he was part of our church. He had been working before the war as a translator, and he was working in Zheshuv, 
um, which is a city in Poland just inside the border. It's very close to Ukraine. But his wife and kids were in Lviv. Their family is part of our church, and he had this job that for temporarily he was having to work in Poland. So my route was I was going to be going to stop in to see him. I was going to stay one night with him in Poland, and then the next day I was going to cross into Ukraine, and I told him, look, Ruslan, if you want me to take your, your wife and kids out, if you want to bring them back with me, I can do that. Um, and they, they ended up deciding not to. But here's what happened is I was driving from Slovakia. Um, I drove north into Poland and then west across Poland, which is the fastest route, stopped into Ruslan before I even got to my friend Ruslan's house, which that was about a six hour, six to eight hour drive from my origin point to where Ruslan was staying there in Poland. There was a missile strike in Lviv, a cruise missile actually hit. They blew up an oil storage depot that is probably three kilometers from my house. And it is literally across the street from the house where his family was staying. His family wow. lives, my apartment is like a, I live on the fourth and fifth floors of, a, of an apartment building. His family lives in a more traditional like sky rise tile building. And he, his family lives, I think on the 15th floor. And as I was driving, he was sending me video that his wife was shooting out their window with billowing flames and smoke. Imagine not being in your home country and getting video from your wife that a cruise missile had hit right outside their house. And they were looking at billowing flames and smoke. They, they felt the whole building shake when the missile hit. That's how real it was. Yeah. And then we got to, um, I remember he and I sitting there in Poland, we went to a, a place to eat steaks and we we're sitting there looking at our phones, watching the news roll in about these missile strikes, knowing that his wife and kids are there. And, you know, we were just, we weren't talking. We we're just like staring at our phones, looking at these telegram channels. I'm not sure if you're familiar with telegram, but it's another no. messaging system. Yep. And there are a lot of news channels um, that, that are available on telegram. And certainly not all of them are legit, but I subscribe to a lot of them. And if you, if you kind of compare what's out there, you can start to get a sense of what's real and what's not. And a lot of them are from people that are, you know, posting stuff that they're seeing on the ground. So um, anyway, I went on into Lviv. At that point, I wasn't even sure if I should go to Lviv. Like, was it safe to cross the border? Were there going to be more missile strikes? Were, were, the, were the Russians going to come in from the north, from Belarus, which would put them very close to our city? I ended up still going and um, spent a few days there in the city, saw the damage. A few weeks after that, there was another missile that hit Lviv that blew up a tire repair shop that was even closer to our house. My wife and I drove by it. We saw it first on the Telegram channels and heard about it on the news because we weren't in country when it happened. <clears throat> but a few a week or two later, my wife and I had to take a visit back to Lviv to do some document work. And the, the road to our house takes us right by it. And we drove right by it. And sure enough, there it was. It's like this huge crater in the middle of the, of the uh, car repair shop. Man, man that's about as real from, as it gets. Yeah, from uh, this thing. So on the political level, it's confusing, I think, for a lot of people because politicians that they dislike and that they know to be dishonest and liberal people, you know, like Biden, Trudeau, different ones who support things that were soundly against like abortion, people who are very liberal, who are very socialist. Those are also the people that are directing military aid to go to Ukraine. And I think for a lot of people, it's difficult to say, well, if Biden is bad or Trudeau is bad or these politicians or this political ideology is bad, then everything they do and everything that they're associated with must also be bad. Um, I know that Zelensky, uh, the president Zelensky, um, the region that I'm from in Lviv is the one oblast in all of Ukraine that he didn't carry when he was elected president. Everybody in my region was against him when he, when he was uh, elected president. Now he's like a national hero. Really? Um, so 
I, I think the truth is that like so many situations in history, there are politicians who are doing what politicians do. Some of it's good, a lot of it's bad. There are people who are dishonest. There are people who are trying to, who are trying to um, manipulate circumstances or benefit from the war. But the on the ground truth is that Russia as a nation has attacked Ukraine and is killing people. They are they lack a lot of the sophistication needed to come in and actually take territory in a modern sense. And so their approach is essentially to use artillery and missiles to obliterate everything in their path and then just ins forward. And when there's nothing left but rubble, then they, they take over the territory. And the stories that we know of, not necessarily firsthand, but secondhand, places that we've been to, people that we know personally, not just, not just news channels that we trust, but you know, in, in, in many major cities and oblasts in Ukraine, I have people that I know, people that I've worked with or talked to. Um, there was another there was another guy who is a he's an American, he's an elderly man, a single guy that we've worked with in years past. He was stationed in central Ukraine, central eastern Ukraine, around an area called Dnipropetrovsk. And Dnipro is one of the bigger cities in toward the east of Ukraine. Um, and he didn't get out uh, right when the rest of us evacuated. He stayed behind but hoping that the war wouldn't get all the way to him. But um, as time went by, it became more and more serious. And he was one of the ones that I was in, in very constant contact with trying to talk him through a safe route out of Ukraine to avoid uh, the Russians. Hmm. So on the one hand, is there some backroom dealing going on? Is Biden doing some, some, uh, some shady stuff? Uh, has the CIA been in there? I'm sure they probably have. But has the Russian empire come in in a cloud of darkness and evil to destroy the Ukrainian people? Absolutely. Um, and while I don't support Biden as a president, I'm, I'm against a lot of what the Democrats stand for and abortion and all those things. I am glad that Ukraine is receiving the long-term weapons that they're receiving, like the HIMARS units, that is making a difference. Um, Ukraine is, a, is an earthly kingdom like any other, and I have no delusions about the fact that you know, there are there are shady people also in the Ukrainian government. They haven't all of a sudden become angels of light just right. because uh, just because they get attacked by Russia. But the truth of the, the truth of the matter, that's that's the real facts on the ground, is that Russia has been committing horrendous, you know, war crimes, if you will, um, killing innocent people, torturing people, just unspeakable things, very Nazi-esque things um, to the point where, you know, to me, Russia has become the modern day Nazi Germany. Not every German was pro-Nazi back in the day. There were people that resisted Hitler, but Germany came to a point politically and because of their leadership and their ideology where the nation as a whole, the critical mass of the nation moved in a direction that was intrinsically evil, the extermination of other people groups because they were deemed subhuman. Right. And there are very clear parallels to modern day Russia with that kind of critical mass. I don't think that Russians are intrinsically evil. They're not, they're not ogres. Um, just because you speak Russian doesn't mean you're from the devil. But the, the leadership that they have supported and the steps that that leadership is taking, for whatever reason, you can say, well, the CIA made them do it. They, NATO has been pressuring them. Maybe so. That does not justify the, the torture and the murder of innocent people that we are seeing um, with, you know, extremely verifiable, broadly verifiable uh, evidence. Right. Um, so, yeah, it's real. Yeah, no, that's, uh, <laughs> that definitely helps clarify things because it's, uh, depending on where you tune in and what you listen to, you almost start getting the, the picture that maybe, maybe, um, 
Russia is being demonized to an extent that isn't really true and that maybe Putin really has some good values and uh, his has maybe higher st moral standards than a lot of the Western countries, right? But it's, uh, it's nice to know, in a sense, from your perspective, what's really happening. Yeah, that's, I mean, I think a lot of that, a lot of that persona that's been pushed over the years of Putin as the noble strategist uh, who only acts this way because, you know, the, the, the corrupt politicians in NATO and the West are pressuring him and giving him no other choice and all of this. There's a, there's a term for that in the world that I don't use because I'm a Christian, <laughs> but it's not, it's not accurate. Uh, Putin. Now, again, there, yes, there are, are there evil leaders in the West? Are there people in NATO that are doing things they shouldn't be doing? I'm sure there are. Um, probably there are in every country, but the things that Putin and his government are doing are not. Yes, absolutely. His, his agenda is Russification um, of, of everybody around him. And I think, you know, I had a podcast episode recently where I talked about the geopolitical angle and the ramifications of, you know, any power that would control the Hordelands and the, the borders they would need to control and how some of that might be pushing his motivation militarily. And that, I think a lot of that is true. But in, in other words, if we're going to examine the motivation, like what would drive Putin to take this risk to, to actually invade Ukraine like he did? Um, there are a lot of theories, and I have some opinions about why I think that happened. But I think that I think what the more I think the more poignant uh, issue that we should be considering is the fruit of what's happening. Why he's doing it, why the war started, what NATO did, did NATO cause it, uh, did they pressure him? We can ask those questions, and, 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 I'm, and I'm sure there are answers to them. But the fact of the matter is, it's not NATO troops that are slaughtering uh, people and bombing train stations, bombing shopping malls, um, those kinds of things. That's, right. that's Russia doing that. And their disregard their disregard for human life is well documented. If you study the the Eastern Front in World War II and the aftermath of, of Operation Barbarossa when the Nazis started to lose and the Russians began pushing them back, eventually, of course, the Soviets, the Red Army, pushed all the way to Berlin. Um, and that's where we wound up with the divided Europe, and that's what touched off the Cold War. But the, the accounts of the utter disregard for human life that was... Uh, practiced by the Russians in that time is, is well known, well documented. Um, and we're seeing the same thing today. Yeah, exact same thing. Very well. Well, so. it's a tough scenario. And um, just can't thank you enough for your service. I mean, we often see soldiers or policemen, and we say thank you for your service. And I would feel very similarly to what uh, what you're doing, in that you're representing the kingdom of Christ, representing Jesus and what he's done for the nations, and that you've given up your life here in in the ease and comfort of the West to live in a place that's uh, much more in turmoil and difficulties abound, right? So appreciate it very much. And also for your time, your uh, two hours that you've put in here, it's, uh, it's much appreciated. So anything you'd like to add or any, I guess we can share your links on the uh, description of the podcast. Yes, well, actually, I'll, I'll definitely provide uh, some links there uh, about you know, different references that we've talked about. But I guess just in closing, I just want to say that I think anytime you know, a missionary or someone tells about their ministry and the things they're doing. Um, it's impossible to view it for, you know, for the, the, the listeners here on the podcast, it's impossible for them to see it on the ground. And it does come across as idealized and it sounds, it sounds perfect and wonderful. And I want to just stress that, especially for those that might be wanting to get into mission work, mission work is also war and war is messy. War uh, rarely turns out the way we planned. There are times that there are times of sorrow. There are times when you feel like uh, you feel disillusioned or you wonder what you're doing here. 
Um, you, a lot of times I feel like we, we could be doing more, we should be doing more, we want to be doing more. But um, I, I wanna just say that we are grateful. We don't feel, I don't feel like my being in Ukraine is some huge sacrifice. Ukraine is where I want to be. Mm. I've spent most of my adult life in Ukraine and I feel like my desire to be there um, is not some noble sacrifice. It's what I long to do. It's what I, it's the land that I love. And seeing, um, seeing the country and I, you know, I don't get me wrong. I'm an American patriot too. I love the United States. I love the land that I was born in, but I've come to love and cherish the Ukrainians and their land um, because I've spent so much time there. And it's, it's very difficult to watch their country be torn apart by mm-hmm. tyrants, um, by, by evil forces. And it's, it is at the center of our hearts to do whatever we can to, to help people, to support them, and mostly to get them to the gospel. Um, and as we hear reports of the turning of the tide and the, the progress that Ukrainians are now making, um, uh, it's, it's hard not to cheer and to be excited um, to see and, and to look forward to a time when peace may again come to Ukraine. We're, we're praying for that, and we're praying that God would, would give us the ability to, to use this opportunity, to take advantage of it, to get the gospel to people who are maybe thinking now about eternity um, more more seriously than they had in the past. So anyway, we're very grateful for the opportunity we have to serve here, and we thank you for for uh, the chance to share about it and for all those who have prayed for us and supported us. We're, we're extremely grateful. Excellent. Well, hopefully there'll be a few more after this, so appreciate it again. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs>